Hello there. You are listening to the Quarter to Three Games podcast for, uh, I don't know, early May. You know what? I, th- I think it is uh, Cinco de Mayo Eve, Eve, Eve. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Fable Heroes. Oh, I'm Jason McMaster, and uh, my game of the week is not Command and Conquer Tiberian Sun. Mm. <laughs> I'm Chris Park, and my game of the week is not Titanus. Oh, I'm, I'm disappointed to hear that. <laughs> uh, Chris Park, you, uh, of all people, uh, I can't believe you are picking on poor Tidalis since uh, you published that, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, uh, I made it and published it, uh, or at least one of the team that made it. But uh, we love that game, but it's definitely not not, not game of the week. It's... Uh... <laughs> Now, Glad you liked it, though. I remember you're, you gave it 100, so that was I, great. Yes, I, I don't think I gave it 100. I'm sure I gave it, like, five stars or something like that. Like, it was one of those things where whatever the score was, I gave it the maximum score. And I'm, I fortunately don't have to uh, fiddle with percentages these days. But, yes, I love to Dallas, although, Chris Park, it is one of three things that confuses me about your company. Uh, I, I want to ask you about all three of these. You've actually cleared one out. So it's it's Tidalis and not Titalis? Right. Are you sure? Definitely sure. Okay. <laughs> like tidal wave, Tidalis. <laughs> oh, like not tiddlywinks. Like tiddlywinks yeah. makes me think of yeah. tiddlywinks, Tidalis. Okay. Uh, all right, so that's one thing cleared up. Another thing cleared up, your company's name. Is that a hard C or a soft C in there? How do you say it? Hard C. It got five years of Latin studies behind me, so you know, I go with the hard Cs, not the not the soft Cs. So, so Arkin, we're Arkin not a felony. Game. <laughs> Not arson games. <laughs> no felons. Oh, I didn't here. even think of that. Okay, that's another. You're, you're giving me these very handy uh, mnemonic devices to remember. <laughs> so, tidal wave, not a felony. Now, help me, because I always have to look this up. Help me with this third one, a constant source of confusion. Is it one AI war or multiple AI wars? Just one AI war. <laughs> but you can have multiple uh, AIs that you're fighting in the game. That's true, but I guess you think it's the the war end all wars in terms of the context of the game. It's humanity's already lost. You're on the brink. This is it. This is the war with the AI, and you're gonna either lose and that's the end of the world, or you know at least humans part in the world, or you're gonna win and well, that's presumably the end of AIs. <laughs> so the, the the ultimate war. There can only be one. Uh, all right, that'll help me with that. All right, so Chris Park, I think you've helped me with the three sources of confusion. I, uh, I'm now pretty clear on Arkham Games. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Glad I could help. Uh, now, you uh, have some big new, well, uh, news, I guess. The news is maybe about a week old, uh, but there's a lot afoot over there recently. Uh, tell us what has been going on at Arkham Games in the last couple of weeks. This, this, by the way, Chris, uh, on the on the podcast, we'll do games of the week and news of the week. I presume the biggest news of the week, maybe the last two or three weeks for you, is what you're just about to tell us about. Uh, yep, for me, that's that's definitely the news. The news of the week for sure. News news of the month or year actually for me <laughs> is that uh, we after uh, 15 months of development or 16, whatever it actually turned out to be. Uh, we are finally done with our game, Avowed Without Wind, and I use that term extraordinarily loosely because we released hit 1.0, which to us is the uh, kind of 
it's a major milestone in that it's a uh, self-contained experience now that you know we're you know happy to have press and players and everybody come in and have a great time with and uh, it represents you know uh, a complete experience but at the same time only a you know a fraction of what ultimately we want to what we want to do with it. So I think anybody who uh, has been with AI War since the beginning and has seen how dramatically it's changed kind of has a sense of what they're in for with Valley Without Wind. Uh, so uh, Valley Without Wind, of course, over its uh, its development process, also changed a lot. Uh, tell us a little bit about what uh, what it became versus what it was when you initially sat down to make it. Well. There was one interview that I gave last week where they asked me, you know, what, what percentage is the, uh, how close is it to your original vision for the game? And I said, well, you know, I could tell you 0% and I could tell you 100%, and both of those would be truthful answers, depending on how you look at it. Mm-hmm. And the, um, you, you know, when I start working on a game, I have in mind, um, what a, what effect I want it to have on me, um, and you know, for instance, with AI War, essentially, if you boil it right on down, I want it to feel like Ender Wigan, uh, you know, commanding massive amounts of you know ships and so forth against the buggers. And obviously, it's not aliens; it's AI and yada 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 yada. But at core, you know, I wanted an Ender Wigan simulator for myself. And um, I have to stop you, know. you right there because I, I don't know who is Ender Wigan. Oh my God! You don't know who Ender Wigan is. I, I can take a guess. I, you know what? I'm guessing that it's from Firefly. Ah, uh, no. Although that was a, another excellent show. But uh, in, Ender Wigan is from uh, the Ender's Game, the Orson Scott Card uh, uh, science fiction novel from uh, you know, Hugo and Nebula Award winner, and you know one of the best. You know, sci-fi books ever, but his you know, whatever. Name, if you his, know, you know. <laughs> his last name is Wigan, like first name Ender, last name Wigan. That's right. That's silly. <laughs> and I, Ender's actually a nickname, but I could get into enormous minutia with that book if you'd like to. His actual name is Andrew Wigan, but he's he goes. His sister couldn't pronounce it when he was three and called him Ender and yada yada yada. McMaster, someone had come to you and said, "What book is Ender Wigan from?" Would you have gotten that one? No. All right. No. That's that's surprising. I guess. You, well, okay. I mean, it's fine. There's there's a lot of books out there, but it's uh, um, well, it's, it's definitely one of those a, ones that comes up as a a lot of people's favorite book. So. Well, it's a gap. Uh, the culture. I've certainly. Uh, I'm thinking. I've certainly heard of it. Uh, I'm familiar with. Like, didn't he write uh, the story for uh, Shadow Complex too? That's how he did know him. Yeah. He yeah. also. Uh, he's a Mormon who hates gay marriage. That's there is that. Political. There is that, and that is something which I just have to overlook. Uh, so what you're saying, uh, Chris, <laughs> is that you're not going to hire him to do writing on Valley Without Wind. Is that correct? Uh, you know... It, don't make us boycott you. We'll do it. <laughs> I, I certainly don't I don't plan to hire anybody to do writing on Valley Without Wind. Uh, yeah, I've actually met Orson Scott Card in person. I've got a number of signed books from him. This was oh, from 12 yes. years ago before any of his opinions on homosexuality came to light at all. Uh-huh. Um, and I always, uh, I'm not a Mormon. I've always thought a lot of him. And he has a very, in general, uh, one of the things that, 
he's always been admired for in his writing has been his excellent sense of morals and his excellent sense of portrayals of so many different cultures and so forth and just looking at you know what is it like to be from some other you know religion other than his and things of that nature and i, I so this whole thing with being against gay marriage that just really came out of left field for me and just seemed completely out of character with everything that I thought I knew about this guy. And whatever. It doesn't well, stop me from liking his books. And, you know, and that's, uh, that's, a, that's a fair point. And I, I think what uh, a lot of the problem that folks have isn't so much that he's against gay marriage, just that he's such a huge financial contributor to legislating against gay marriage. Uh, I would have no problem if that were just part of his personal belief, but once he starts funding initiatives to put that into legislation, I, I think that's where some of us have a problem. Right. Uh, but, and, and also, I've, it, then, I fully... Then, again, uh, then yeah. again, though, I mean, if that is his belief, and I hold a diametrically opposite belief from him on this, just mm -hmm. to be clear, but if that is his belief... Um, uh, don't we think that whatever anybody's belief is, they ought to be, if they have the means to be financially right. contributing to seeing their beliefs go through, shouldn't they be doing that? Yes, if you believe that your belief system should be imposed on others. And, and I feel that that's a fundamental broken perspective to have. Uh, to, it's a fundamental way to express your religious belief. It's a fundamentally that, broken way. That's true. And, I, and I, you got me there because I agree with that wholeheartedly. And that's what's so funny is that normally if you read Orson Scott Card's books, especially his earlier ones, I mean, Ender's Game was written in 1984 or 5, um, I would think he would be arguing what you just said. <laughs> He's so always has seemed so inclusive and so forth. And so then to have this one issue all of a sudden come up and it's like, right. oh, well, if we're inclusive on everybody except, well, not these guys. That's a sin. It's like, okay. Uh, I will say getting older can do funny things to people. That too. <laughs> so, that uh, too. so, so it, I do hear, though, that it sounds like you really admire him. It sounds like Ender's Game was a huge influence on you in terms of making AI war. Uh, and you, you were starting to mention that when you began Valley Without Wind, you approached it as wanting to recreate an experience, just like AI War recreated the experience of Ender's Game. Uh, what were you trying to recreate with Valley Without Wind? With that one, uh, it's really a kind of uh, a little bit more of a nebulous idea in terms of several games I could point to. Um, but that idea of you're all alone, you're the lone hero, you are weak, and the world is unimaginably hostile, and get to it, guy, you know, and, and, and it's just the idea that you have a certain amount of freedom and so forth. And that goes back to when I was a real young kid, uh, the second Zelda game, the one that from, that's from the side view that everybody yeah. hated, um, I liked it too. But at the same time, it's kind of a love-hate. It's kind of an abusive relationship sort of thing. So, I mean, there is a lot of stuff wrong with that game. It's but, I mean, frustrating. Yeah. It's really frustrating. Um, and from a modern design standpoint, it's, you know, really broken in a lot of ways. But as a kid, you don't look at things that way. And it created an atmosphere for me that, that I wanted to recreate in a way that wasn't frustrating. And... Uh, there's a lot of other games that have created an atmosphere of that sort. I mean, 
Silent Hill 2, for instance, on the PlayStation 2, is a game that I just adore, and I think that the atmosphere that it created, it was just, just crazy good, and the writing was just really good. See, and that's the shame about the movie, because, like, if they just uh, straight up used the script of Silent Hill 2, that would have been awesome, because, I mean, they already had James, basically. Yeah, I know. I didn't watch the movie. I had been all excited about it, and then once I saw the reviews, I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to subject myself to that. It was was pretty rough, yeah. I'm I'm sure. So, I mean, you know, there's there's various games that I can point to that create this thing. And now Silent Hill 2, of course, you don't really have true choice, but at the same time, you can influence that. There's like whatever it is, six, seven endings, something like that. I think I only got two of them, but... Uh, oh, yeah. They, they have a crazy... They have that dog ending and stuff, too. Yeah, I never got that one. Um, oh, God. But, but, yeah, I mean, I think I watched some of the other ones on YouTube or something. Yeah. Point, but, uh, you know, a couple of... You know, there's only so many times you can encounter Pyramid Head without, you know, your, uh, your head exploding, but... Yeah. <laughs> Run around in like a small room from him for like forty-five seconds or whatever. Only yeah, to it's exactly. That one when he comes down the hallway and you're going into the elevator, I think takes the cake. Or when he appears on the oh. roof. But, but yeah, I hated the stairway. That was the one I had so much problems with for some yeah. reason. It's like because it was timed, you know. I guess yeah. uh, you just had to outlast him. It was awful. Yeah. Uh, so, so given that, that Silent Hill was uh, was a sort of an inspiration for this idea of an unimaginably hostile world, well, what strikes me as a more uh, as sort of a bigger bullet point about Valley Without Wind, and something that that must have occurred to you early on, is that it's also an unimaginably large world. Uh, this is you could even say infinite, I guess, with the the randomly generated levels. Uh, that must have been uh, an early design point for you, right, Chris? Oh, for sure. And, that, uh, you know, a lot of times procedurally generated stuff is at the core of what we do with a lot of, you know, our titles in general at Arkin. I, I, I've done the hand-designed levels thing. It's I've, I've done that for 15 years on other people's games and on games that I coded but haven't released and so forth. And that's fun. I like making levels by hand. It, it can be very rewarding, and it's great fun for someone else to play. The problem is, if you make the level, you're not going to have any fun playing it yourself because there's no sense of discovery. There's just there's just nothing. So the only way that I can play a game of my own, uh, which you know I'd kind of like to be able to because it's part of why I make them, is if I make it so that the game is, is capable of surprising me and showing me things that I haven't seen before, despite the fact that you know I was coding it or whatever. And I, you know I could hire a level designer to do it or something separately, but. You know, yada yada yada. Even so, most development teams—if it's a you know—if you were on the Skyward Sword development team, by the time you're done with it, even if you weren't the level designer, you know all the levels inside and out, and are probably sick of them. So, so your your yeah. incentive to make the uh, randomly generated terrain was strictly selfish and not at all altruistic. <laughs> uh, I mean, you could look at that's 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 why I make indie games in general. It's uh, there's a game I want to play. Nobody's making that game, so I'll, fine, I'll do it myself then. You did I mention mean, in an earlier email that that part of your design it's out of this love slash frustration approach to certain genres. 
Uh, is it, this is the game you want to play and nobody else is doing it, so dead gummit, you roll up your sleeves and you make it yourself. Uh, right. Which is great. I'm glad nobody else is doing it in the one hand because it's also really, really fun to actually make the games. I love the creation process, which I think is an important thing because, uh, you know, if you do, some people make games or make any other sort of creative thing and they don't love the process and that's only going to last them so long before they're like, I can't take it anymore. I love the result, but this process stinks. Uh, let me do something else with my life. And I love the process and the result, but I want to make sure that the result is something that I can actually enjoy as a consumer as well as, you know, enjoy the creation process of. well so so here's where i'm curious to hear about the 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 development process the the what valley without wind went through uh it, there were some significant changes over the course of the development uh what were these and what triggered those changes well there were a lot of changes really uh you know the big 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 one that jumps out at you earliest probably is that uh, we started out with this top-down perspective um, kind of like the traditional Zelda games, not Zelda 2, but more like you know Zelda 1, Link to the Past, that sort of thing. And uh, we then, we did that for, I guess, maybe five months, something like that, the first five months of development. And it just, you know, it was okay. It, you know, it felt a little too, a little too well-trodden on the one hand. And the... The people just couldn't get over the way that the perspective on the art was and so forth. It just, with pixel art, you can get away with this kind of faux top-down slash three-quarters slash front-on perspective. That's what most pixel art games are, like Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy VI, etc. The perspective yeah. in those, from an artistic standpoint, is Bonkers! It's incredibly wrong, but because it's kind of an abstract form with pixel art, our brains are able to assimilate it. You look at any particular part of it, it looks right. You look at the whole thing, it looks right. If you really look at kind of the boundaries of where I'm seeing the roof, the entire roof, and the entire front of this building, that's not physically possible. What? <laughs> Hold on. And if you really think about it, it's like, hey, it looks like Chrono's kind of laying on his back if you really want to think about it, you know, but your brain doesn't think that. Your brain thinks, oh, Chrono's standing there because he looks like he's standing there, but he could just as easily be laying down. And so the more realistic you get with the art, which we were using uh, pre-rendered 3D models and then having like a painterly overlay on it, we kind of got into the uncanny valley, I think, with that of where it's like, okay, this is not pixel art. It's not abstract enough. And yet it's not full 3D, and this perspective just, it just drove a lot of people nuts. They just could not accept it. I thought it looked pretty cool, and looking back at some of the old videos, I'm like, ah, oh, the shadow system was so cool with that. I missed <laughs> that a little bit. But, um, you know, there have, were also... Having seen how it's turned out, though, Chris, like, I cannot imagine, and I think back to the early screenshots I saw, I, I'm just so much happier with the choice to just go 2D for, from a visual perspective. Me too, and and that's been the general that's been the general consensus. People were like, "Oh, it's, you know," some people still hate the art, and that's you know, you're never going to please everybody, and it's not crisis and so on. But uh, you know, the general consensus has been, "Oh my goodness, whether we hate it or not, it's worlds better than it was," and uh, and, and I think that's 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 very much true. And you know, even just from a gameplay perspective, we were hitting the boundaries of what started feeling kind of cliche from a top-down standpoint with just 
there's been so many top-down adventure games, and back in the 90s, in the eight, early, early 90s, and then in the 80s, there were every other game was a platformer, of course, back then. And so then there was this kind of rubber band effect where then there weren't all that many platformers except, like, Mario clones or things that were just about platforming. But the thing, you know, you had, like, Adventure Island and all this stuff in the in the 80s, that, you know, all, you know, Castlevanias, et cetera, which you still do have on, like, the handheld platforms, the, the Mega Mans and the, and the other Metroidvania-type games from the side view. But it's just really been marginalized lately and so that's where i felt like okay you know we can do something a lot more interesting here and you get some more tactics out of uh a battle system simply by virtue of every direction is not the same if you're looking top down any direction you want to walk in it's equally easy to walk in but when you've got a side view it's very easy to go down you just fall but it's very much more difficult to go up and so that immediately creates some tension that mm-hmm. uh is just inherent in the environment and even if there's not monsters around right then there's tension in walking across and not falling down a hole or whatever and or you know getting up a cliff whatever it is but there's none of that when you're looking at the top down if there's not monsters around you're just trucking along through the grass and not running into trees and that's kind of boring <laughs> not running into trees that that is the great moment to moment challenge from that perspective isn't that <laughs> yeah i mean so it, that's not to knock top down games either cuz it can work really well but it just it wasn't giving us the vibe we want it wasn't it wasn't gelling we had talked really super early on in before we actually started prototyping this even about hey what if we did this from the side view and then i was like ooh no i don't think we can do tactical enough combat uh that way let's let's go top down i think that's really where the tactics are going to be at and it turned out the opposite was actually true well and so much you you talk about that up and down tension so much of the moment to moment gameplay in valley without wind is things like setting platforms uh you you know creating your own terrain in a way and i can't I, i can't imagine but think that you would have lost that with a top down view oh yeah that was that mean that wasn't there at all it was uh you know, you could hide behind a tree and try and block an enemy spell that way. Yeah, and that's that's why it didn't work. I mean, it, right. it it was okay. It was it was serviceable. It wasn't horrible. But that's not really what you want to say about your game, is it? I mean, the, it's not horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it could be worse. <laughs> now, now I'm curious, Chris. When you made the shift to 2D, was that a eureka moment, or did that take some getting used to? Was it was that a uh, was that something? As soon as you made the shift, you knew that you had fixed something, or was it more difficult than that? Oh man, I was on such a high. As soon as it, it took us a couple of weeks to. Uh, to get everything polished and revealed, but inside three days we had the entire thing converted to actually functioning from a side view, and it was just, you know, it was just immediately apparent how much better it was, and it was, we were, it was, it was just such a high because I felt like we had gotten into this rut and we were just like, I don't know, it's it's, it's not working, I don't know exactly what to do with this. Um, we've got a lot of pieces here that are good, but it's just not working. And so it was just 
it was such a rush. It was really a relief to have it finally coming together, thanks to being from the side view. And then, you know, we revealed it, and, you know, we had some commenters going, oh, God, now all sense of exploration is going to be gone and so forth. And we had other commenters going, um, excuse me, have you never played any Metroid or Castlevania game? Or, you know, so it's like, hello, Terraria, or whatever. It's just like, yeah, exploration, that only works from when you look down at your character. <laughs> well, now, so, uh, so... You went through the process. You had that great perspective shift. Uh, the game came out. So I'm curious about two things with, with the release. Uh, A, how has it done? And B, how do you feel about the various reactions you've heard? Um, well, in terms of, uh, you know, financially so far, you know, knock on wood, it's done really well for us. Um, our, you know, our, our, my game of the week this week is not Todd Alice. Uh, that was our <laughs> second game, uh, you know, reviewed really well, but really bombed financially. Uh, within like, I don't know, four or five days of being out, uh, a Valley Without Win has already outsold Todd Alice life to date, which is not really saying a whole lot about a Valley Without Win, almost more of a slam on Todd Alice, but, um, which is, is again, it's a great game, and I hope more people discover it because of A Valley Without Wind, but it's it just never found its audience before. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, also it's one of those things where uh, AI War has been out three years now, had three expansions and, you know, our bundle of it and all that sort of thing, and our life-to-date earnings for that versus A Valley Without Wind in one week, A Valley Without Wind has earned about a ninth of what... Uh, uh, AI War has earned over the last three years. So wow. that's uh, substantial. It's uh, it's not a, you know, we've, we've had to take on more staff in order to make this happen. So we're, you know, full-time staff of five with some part-timers now, and that creates some tension that wouldn't be there otherwise in terms of, you know, is this going to financially support us to where we can just keep cranking out free updates for another three years like we did with AI War and do the occasional paid expansion, which is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, early signs are positive, but it's kind of down to word of mouth and sustained sales and so forth. And, you know, the vote's going to be kind of out on that until, you know, three months or so things tend to settle down more. But uh, I, I would guess, just a uh, completely uneducated guess, that something like Valley Without Wind is going to be one of those games with weird legs where uh, it, it has its own niche. Uh, I, I can't help but think that, you know, as you're adding new content, as people hear things about it, as people sort of struggle to figure out what it is without playing it, uh this is a game that I, that I can't imagine would just sort of fade away. Like AI War, which you did a great job with creating this cool new thing, and it sort of percolated amongst people who liked RTSs. A year later, somebody who'd maybe heard about it would finally try it, and then he would talk about it and tell his friends about it. Uh, I can see Valley Without Wind having very similar legs as, as AI, AI War. Um, that's encouraging. That's, that's what we're hoping for. And I think that having the ongoing updates is one of those things that really helps because having a, having the game be kind of a living world, which has always been the case with AI War, and it's still something that we uh, maintain, albeit at a slower pace while we're actively, you know, so focused on a valley. But, uh, you know, we, we do have more AI War expansions planned and so forth still. Um, but it's... it's uh, you know, that, that's the hope, because, you know, as big as this game is already, um, there's just so much more that I want to do with it. And, um, you know, if the players are there, 
then I'm going to be there as well. And the rest of the team is, is excited about it as well. And it's going to be there. Uh, you know, there's, you know, I was, it was sad to see Terraria break up. I never did play Terraria, partly because it was a game that I felt like uh, if I did play it, it was just going to suck up way too much of my time, and I needed to get to work. <laughs> it but, does. It does. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it looked really, really cool, and I was it's really pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and and I was really sorry to see them stop development, <clears throat> especially in the way that they did. And I worry a little bit that's going to shake people's confidence in. Indie developers kind of sticking with things for the long haul. I mean, on the one hand, anybody who bought Terraria, they got their money's worth. Good grief. Oh, no, absolutely. That game actually went through a lot of, like, really cool content updates. I mean, it's sad that they stopped, but there's a lot of game there, especially compared to, like, how it came out. But, like, there is a ton of content in that freaking game. Right, exactly. So, I mean, there's some people that are like, well, more stuff was promised than that. And it's like, well, what do you expect for $10 on the one hand? But... (laughs) But at the same time, you know, given the success that they did have, it's a shame that kind of creative differences had to break up the band, so to speak. And, uh, y- you know, uh, that's one of the things with Arkin is that, you know, I'm the sole owner. We don't have any debt. There's no investors whatsoever. There's just me. And there's people that, you know, are on to, to work with me, and they are creative partners in the projects that we work on. And there's not some, like, crazy hierarchy where I'm, like, Mr. Dictator or something. But if there was some sort of irreconcilable difference, there's not some way that the band just ran- randomly breaks <laughs> up. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just yeah. it's, it's not like we can splinter and, like, the art guy goes and takes half the game and I take the other in the custody battle or something. There's there's no custody battle possible. <laughs> do you, uh, at, at Arkham Games, do you have your own parking spot, by the way? Sure, it's right out front of my house. <laughs> it's called your driveway. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We don't actually have an office. Uh, we're all over the country. So there's uh, there's one guy in L.A. Uh, and uh, one guy in in Georgia. And uh, then just kind of mostly by chance, three of us are in the North Carolina Raleigh Durham area. But uh, two of us in Durham, and and then myself, I'm in Cary. But so we're we're all over, and just uh, it's all virtual. Now, tell me about the reactions to Valley Without Wind, because this is a game where I would be like, uh, I I would imagine that this is one of those things where 30% of the people who play it hate it, 40% of the people who play it are like, "Uh, well, yeah, that's interesting, and then the final 30% are like, holy cats, this is awesome. Uh, so, so I don't know if you have any numbers in terms of how how that breaks down, but but what is what is the range of reactions that you've got, and how do you feel about those reactions? Well, I mean, yeah, we've had everything from this is absolutely the worst game I've ever seen in my life to this is in the top ten games I've ever played. Um, so, I mean, I'm serious. We've had both. And um, and the, you know, there's a lot of drive-bys with any sort of, uh, you know, I can't really give you percentages because I, I honestly don't know. There's... If you go on YouTube or you go on some news sites, you get a lot of drive-bys with people that are like, oh, the art is terrible, and that's what they want to focus on. And the art is definitely not to some people's tastes. At the same time, I get a number of people who aren't just Arkin fanboys or whatever who say, I love the art. And I think that one big place where the divide comes is if you were a child of the 80s and 90s, uh, the art looks like something that 
the Super Nintendo or regular Nintendo could have grown up into had 3D not taken over everything. Mm -hmm. And those people uh, like the art because it gives a nostalgic feel. And, you know, we have a similar number of animation frames and so forth to the Super Nintendo, and we're running at, you know, 60 FPS or better, which the regular Nintendo did, but I don't think the Super Nintendo did. I don't know. So it's nice and smooth, even though it's not necessarily, you know, fully animated like a 3D game. Then you get the people that, you know, are child of the 2000s or the late 90s, and they grew up on PlayStation or whatever, and they have totally different expectations. They're not nostalgic for that sort of older, older school uh, stuff. They might be able to appreciate the really obviously retro stuff that's just like pixel art um, because that's kind of become a genre all of its own. But what we've got is not pixel art. It's kind of what pixel art might have evolved into had history gone a different way. And so for the people that that lived through that, I think they appreciate it. And the ones that didn't, they either tolerate it or really hate it. And, you know, to be frank, YouTube compression doesn't do us any favors because there's a lot of small details and we get, you know, some, some stuff washed out. And we've been doing our videos at 1080p, which I'm, you know, lately realizing is kind of a mistake because it makes everything extra small. So we probably ought to be doing them at 720p instead, you know. And so there's, you, know, you got stuff like that. Um, but, you know, there's still people that, 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 that fire up the game and just loathe the graphics. And, you know, we get people that tell us the combat is just absolutely horrible and it's terrible. They can't believe how bad the combat is and so forth. And we get people that are like, the combat is so awesome and this is just reminds me of these classic, you know, Castlevania games that I loved in the Super Nintendo era and so forth. And we get people that say, oh, I love the sense of exploration and I've just been exploring around like crazy and it's been so much fun. And then you get the people that are like, there's no sense of exploration. There's, <laughs> it's just a grind and I have no motivation to go anywhere. And so it's kind of like, it was an interesting week, I tell you that. I mean, <laughs> I can imagine. It, you know, that's it's kind of like, what do you do with that? And then it's like, well, you look at the numbers, it's like, well, you know, damn, it's selling well one way or the other. This is our most profitable thing ever, by far. Um, I mean, uh, not in terms of you know, it, it, given time, it looks like it will be that case. And it's it, in terms of its opening rate, it's outselling what AI War did three to one. So. Have you, you know, had much luck getting press? Is this something that, as an indie, do you feel that you've gotten past the hurdles? Like, I know what a struggle it must have been uh, getting people to look at and cover AI War. Uh, do you feel like that's a hurdle that you've gotten over and you can get uh, the appropriate press for value without wind? The press has been, the bigger the outlet in general, as, you know, and the votes are still coming in in some respects here, too, so this may not be true come next week. Thus far, <laughs> the bigger the outlet, the more positive the response has been on the game. Um, but with they're even AI, looking at it, though, is one of the things. I mean, they're a lot even of looking at it. Yeah. This is one of those things that uh, part of, I think, what has engendered such a negative reaction from some players has been that they got the, the concept of this game pretty much excites everybody. I, I, that is something that... People hear, whoa, it's procedurally generated. You got, you know, Infinite World and it's this Metroidvania type thing. Whoa, that sounds awesome. There's almost nobody that I've encountered um, who doesn't go, whoa, that sounds really cool. 
So at this point, you've set the bar kind of high. You know what I mean? And, and you know what they say about that. <laughs> then so you get these people that come in and are like, oh, it looks like this. Oh, you know, and you get other people that go, it looks like this. Wow, this is like, you know, sh- you know circle of the moon, but newer, you know, whatever. And so um, that has been something where getting press has been, I won't say easy. Uh, we've got a, a press guy, Eric Johnson, who you know he writes for uh, DIY Gamer and IndieGames.com as well, and he uh, has been you know doing some development work for us as well as doing you know uh, public relations and marketing type stuff for us as well. He's been working his butt off full time job. Uh, doing this, so I won't say it's been easy. Uh, that would be a disservice, Eric. But at the same time, doors are open to this game that weren't open to AI War. Um, we got so much coverage for AI War in Europe alone, just because that's where the strategy game market is, and that's where people want to talk about strategy games. And so, uh, when we went to PAX East, um, I think I did. 40-ish, somewhere in there, press sessions in three days. I mean, it was just constant. Some of them were overlapped. It was so busy with people coming by. And three of them had ever heard of Arkin before that. And, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> what I'm talking about. We were just completely unknown. It wasn't like they'd even heard of AI War. And it's like, oh, you guys are the ones who did AI War. It's like they had no clue who we were, but the idea of the game right. – um, was interest, so interesting to them that they wanted to come and see it. And so that's been really gratifying. Uh, you know, we got on Kotaku in a really major way uh, just recently, and they were, you know, talking about uh, how much they liked it. And, you know, we put that right up on the Steam store once we had permission from them. So that was a, a really, you know, quite a cool moment to see, uh, you know, our game, like, taking up the front half of Kotaku for, you know, half an hour or something. And, you know, there's there's been other things of that scale, too. But then again, there's, like, Rock, Paper, Shotgun. They've been traditionally a real supporter of us uh, with AI War and so forth, real positive on our stuff. Um, they really, uh, you know, I don't know if loathing is the right word, but they really didn't like it. They just really didn't like the art and really didn't like the way that it, uh, they felt like the different elements of the game didn't mesh, which is kind of the opposite of what a lot of other people have said. So, I mean, there's a major example of a major outlet that really didn't feel like we did it right. Well, I w- but I I wanna... we... Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I want to throw three things at you yeah. uh, that I think are um, risky, and I, I would wonder uh, if these were difficult decisions. And, and then I want to talk to McMaster a bit about his experience with it. So, McMaster, I think you come to Valley Without Wind uh, the most naked, if you will. Uh, and that I, I followed this a fair bit. I kind of knew what I was in for. Uh, I knew AI War did some crazy things. But McMaster, I think you just jumped in naked, both feet first. Uh, and I want to hear about your experience in a second. But first, Chris, let me throw three things at you that it does that I think are uh, risky and bold. And if I was like your producer, I would be, okay, Chris, before we release, we want to sit down and discuss these three things and make sure we're we're uh, expressing them as clearly as we can. So the first thing that I think is kind of a sticking point that Valley Without Wind does differently from many other games and that is uh, 
that I wonder about as I play, there's no real sense of a character. Normally when you play a game like this, you're leveling up a character, you get an avatar, like a persona that you associate with, you improve his skills, you uh, fill out his inventory, and you have a lot of these elements here. But you're not really a character. You know, your character can die and you reset as a new character, yet you keep that character's inventory and skills. Um, you're leveling up the skills almost without a container to put them in, a person who knows the skills. Uh, and I wonder if that was a difficult part of, is that something you struggled with during the design process? Uh, and, and how much of a liability do you feel that is? Well, if somebody's coming to this game and expecting it to be an RPG, I can tell them right up front that, in my opinion, this is probably the worst RPG ever made. <laughs> um, and that also goes for Mario Kart. I mean, I guess maybe Mario Kart is a worse RPG than this one, but, I mean, it's kind of a, a question of intent and, and expectations. And it's, it's a funny metaphor, but, I mean, you know, if you go to Mario Kart and you expect F1 racing you're going to be darn disappointed. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that what Mario Kart is doing isn't, you know, kart racers are established now, but when it first came out, that was pretty different. Uh, now, that's dodging your question a little bit. To actually answer your question, um, I think that Keith and I, Keith, Keith Lamoth is, uh, has been kind of my co-designer and uh, the, other, the sole other programmer working on this with me. When we set out, initially we really did want to make um, heavy characterization and you know kind of dynamic procedural stories that you would care about and um, you know really go RPG with this. Mm -hmm. I mean that was something we we wanted to attempt. But the thing is, uh, as we learned through prototyping, that sounds great on paper, but nobody has ever in the history of gaming so far that I'm aware of successfully created a compelling narrative in a procedural fashion. I mean, you know, a human story that people care about with characters you care about needs to be uh, handwritten. And uh, that's something that through we, what, the way that we kind of address this to bring some personality to the world and so forth is um, by making this kind of backstory that you can uncover through the mystery rooms. I don't know if you've discovered any of these, but you, you in certain large buildings like pyramids in particular or other really big and imposing buildings, you can go in there and you can find the puzzle room. If you solve it, then you'll unlock a mystery uh, clue for one of your active mysteries. And once you piece those clues together, you can kind of put together something that's happened in the in the world in the uh, you know explaining why the world is kind of the weird way that it is. I mean time shattered and everything's all messed up and what exactly happened and the game doesn't really directly explain that, but through these mysteries you can start piecing it together yourself, which I thought, you know, why not make a game out of that rather than just handing you gobs of background exposition. Um and with that, we went a more personal route, and there are characters that you're kind of picking up pieces of their journals and stuff, and you get some personality out of it that way. Um, and my wife has largely been writing those, and uh, I think they're really compelling, if I do say so. But uh, in terms of your own character, um, yeah, basically, as we went through development, we realized we can't make you care about these characters without them being, you know, individual 
characters that are handwritten that you're going to care about. And that's at odds with the goals of what we want to do from a gameplay point of view. And really what it's more about is you. Uh, you, you know, if you look at Legend of Zelda, uh, Link as a character... Yeah, I mean, I love Link as a character. I really love the Zelda games. But, you know, he never talks. He's kind of just your avatar. And people really get nuts about Link and dress up as him. I, I've been Link multiple Halloweens, I'll, I'll admit. Uh, you know, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, at the same time, he's not like a fully, he's not, Jane Sunderland from Silent Hill 2. He's not this fully realized character in a in a literary sense. And uh, so, okay, that, that's kind of that's kind of what where we went through. Um, that's kind of the perspective we came from is saying, okay, well, some of these characters you may come to care about through events that transpire. You went through a lot of hardship together with them, and they were there, and therefore you start caring about them. We saw that with AI War with certain planets that would take on a significance. It's randomly generated random planet, but it's like you had these epic battles there with the AI, and suddenly you're like, ah, that planet, or who that planet, one way or the other. And so, you know, you start assigning significance to it. But what we realized was that fundamentally it was beyond our ability to assign significance for you. If that was going to happen, it was going to happen you know, organically, and most of the time it would not happen. Right. Well, now, and just to clarify a bit what I'm talking about, like you're definitely addressing character from a narrative perspective, and I can completely understand why that's not there. And I love that you have pointed out those mysteries because, by golly, I have a great little panel full of question marks, and I know that, hey, there's something cool that I'm eventually going to plug into these slots. So I'm glad to hear that you've got little bits, uh, little surprises for me there. But when I talk about character, I'm talking about more of the mechanical perspective because you definitely have the mechanical mechanics of upgrading skills, slotting those skills in my ten little slots, but there's this weird thing where my character can repeatedly die and be replaced by a new one. And that, that in a way, means it, it means a little bit, because you've got the temporary upgrades that, those, that you can spend. Um, but, like, you can upgrade characters using those stones that you find, and when you die, you lose that. Uh, but all this investment that I'm doing in my inventory and my skills, uh, all of that is is temporary, is ephemeral. And now you talk about it with this, uh, you know, the game explains it with this concept of a glyph bearer, and the glyph, I think, moves from character to character. So you've got the, the sort of the narrative way around that, but the mechanics of it, this is a character I've built, a character I've made, uh, you have the mechanics of that without any of the stakes of when he dies, something happens. Uh, I feel like I'm just kind of moving the contents of this container between different random containers. Uh, and, and I'm not even necessarily criticizing that. I'm just saying it's a weird perspective, and I wonder if people have a hard time wrapping their heads around it. Uh, it's an interesting thing. I think that overall, in an on-paper sense, everybody I've told how it works has had a really positive reaction to it, and it's been mm -hmm. something that people have commented it on, commented on a fair bit. Um, originally, uh, during alpha and even somewhat during early beta, we had stiffer penalties for when your character died. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing that happened there was that that just wasn't as fun. Uh, people felt sure. like there was too much at stake and like they were really being penalized. And so then you get into the tendency for people to want to save scum. 
And uh, that was something that I really didn't want to ever encourage was people right. to feel like they needed to save scum where whatever happened, okay, this just became part of the narrative and now we move on. And, I, yeah, I will agree. I, I think that it's a little bit on the too-friendly end, and there's actually some discussion in our forums amongst players and us about, okay, um, where do we go with this now? This this idea and, you know, the vengeful ghosts that pop out that, that mm-hmm. you have to fight of your character, that's a pretty cool mechanic, and a lot of people seem to like that. But it's also a fairly uh, limited mechanic. It's cool the first few times you see it but it's and and it, and it creates a legitimate kind of risk reward in a strategic sense of okay go and die in the overlord's throne room 20 times <laughs> now you gotta fight him and 20 ghosts so i mean there's that that aspect is positive from just a strategic standpoint but from a from a mechanically do i care do i feel like this character is a presence standpoint it doesn't really help right and um and that's something that that we're going to have to tackle uh, post, you know, in post-release content. I think as, um, you, you know, we bit off a lot with this with this project, and that was something we realized increasingly as we went as we went through it. And it's like, well, on several things, we could do a lot of things kind of poorly, um, which I feel like the early versions of AI War kind of did that, uh, and they got refined with time. Or we can buckle down and limit the scope for 1.0 in a few ways and do those things really well. And so I feel like the level of polish in general with A Valley Without Wind is much, much, much higher than AI War was until maybe sure. right. 3 or 4.0, I mean, a couple of years into its development. So, um, yeah, but, yeah. But, yeah but, that, but that just means that we left some stuff on the table, and that's definitely one of them. So if I was your producer, here's what I would suggest. Uh, I would suggest every time you pick a new character, a little box comes up where you can either accept a random name or you can let the player choose a name. Because I think that that inherently adds a little bit of, of attachment right there when you, right. you give the player an option to give a name. And then the second thing I would recommend is in the settlement – put a gravestone that lists every character and how he's died, kind of like a rogue hack or a, a, a rogue or net hack um, hall of fame, right. uh, e- even if you just have, like, the last ten. Uh, and even we so, actually, if the play, Yeah, oh, so go ahead. We actually do have an event log on the continent that does I've show... I've seen the icons, yes. Like, it shows deaths and it shows... You can click them and it shows the name and when they died and so forth. Um, but, but no one would... Like, people but yes. miss that. I, I think if you had a gravestone... I, I hear you. In the settlement yeah. where when a player went by, because there's a lot of, at least from what I've seen so far, there's a lot of empty room there and a lot of places where when I die, I walk past those two Ilari things. Uh, like if there were a gravestone there that, that would remind me every time I went by, here are the people that have preceded me. Uh, so yeah, and that, that was something that I wanted to do, actually, and part of the reason part of the reason for that space, some of it's for the buildings that you build in the background, mm-hmm. and part of it was so that I could put in tombstones. But I kept having this thought of, well, people are going to die a lot, and <laughs> you're eventually not going to have room for tombstones anymore, and so what do you do then? Your settlement so, is just a graveyard, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, but you're right. I, it, really, the simplest solution to that is just to say, okay, look, let's we'll put in as many tombstones as we can, and then we just shuffle out who's 
who's shown on each one, so it shows the most recent X that fit. So if that's 10 or if that's 100 or whatever, and you've got this dire-looking graveyard of characters in there, <laughs> that's actually kind of interesting. Uh, um, so but yeah, and you can rename your characters, but it's really kind oh. of going around your elbow to get to your to get to it at this point because you can rename the NPCs, but you can't rename your own character. And so if you ah. if you swap your glyph with one of the other characters right, right. Uh, that's an NPC, then you can rename your character while he's an NPC and then take him back. And that's really not a <laughs> that's really kind of a ridiculous <laughs> way to go about it. Um, so here's so, two other things I want to bring up that I think are, yeah. uh, and these other two things, I like the character thing, I think uh, I understand the complications there, but these are two things that I think you have done a great job explaining, uh, but that I still think are kind of sticking points, but you've done as well as you can with these two things. One is this sense that you've got an infinite world, and a lot of people are going to, to jump in and just go someplace and not really find anything or make any progress because they're not paying attention to the tools you've given them to direct them to certain tasks or locations. Uh, I, I feel that the, the reference material, the big honkin' encyclopedia, you just added this great option for a shopping list on the right side of the, the screen when you hit escape. You've given people great tools to say, hey, this world is, is infinite don't just head in one direction and expect things to happen. Set goals and do these goals. Uh, I think you've done a great job with that, but I can't imagine a lot of players who don't want to read, who just want to jump in and shoot stuff, will feel lost if they don't pay attention to these tools you've given them. Uh, do, do you find that frustrating? Is, is, there, uh, is that even an issue? Well, first of all, thanks for that in terms of, I'm, I'm glad that... Uh to hear that that uh, works so well, in your opinion, I, I think it works well also, obviously. But uh, but it's, it's great to hear that uh, confirmed from outside sources too. Um, in terms of your actual the conundrum there, one thing that I would say is that on one level, sure, that's a little bit frustrating. People don't read um, with certain major reviews that came out that were negative, uh, I feel like that happened, where uh, there's only been a couple, but they said, oh, I went in and I, you know, just kind of wandered around, and, you know, they didn't actually even find any missions, and they saw it on the map, but they didn't actually bother to stop, and they didn't, you know, like, I had to explore every nook and cranny, but, you know, the pop-up, as soon as you go into an abandoned building, it's like, hey, don't do that. Just here's how you use the map and where you go. And so, you know, clearly they just click through. And it's like, well, that's particularly frustrating when a reviewer does that. But, you know, uh, a reviewer's got a lot of things on their plate, too. So, I mean, I can't really complain terribly much. Well, I think also what's going on partly there, Chris, is a lot of gamers are conditioned by things like like a, a Bethesda RPG. When you go into a house, part of the economy is you want to get everything out of that house or else you're gimping yourself. You know, there's sure. this early sense of I need to collect everything around me sure. to sell to the vendor to buy the better sword because that's how the game is tuned. Sure. Pick up every broom because you don't want to reach the broom dungeon and be unprepared, right? I love that. The that, was a, was, that was a good comic. That was really That funny. was hilarious. I thought that was just so perfect. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, so, I mean, that that is what people are being conditioned to do, and I'm intentionally trying to uncondition them from that, and that's always risky. We tried, 
with uh, AI war to uncondition people from taking every piece of territory in the entire map, and we were successful with that. Um, People uh, learned not to do that. And actually, we still had some people that were able on a lower difficulty level to over a span of 100 hours or something crazy to take every last planet in a 100-planet map. There were some people that played literally like 14 months, and it took them over like 100 in-game hours, and they took every planet in a 100, 100 or 120-planet galaxy. And I was like, wow, that is that's one way to do it. I mean, whatever. They had fun, so who might have, you know, the, the bottom line is they had fun. And so that's to get to your actual question. <laughs> the... When it comes to players, um, as long as they're having a good time, that's all I care about. Uh, that's the core of what this is, is that this is a big, hostile world. You go out and you take power in whatever way you see fit, and you do it. Uh, you you do what whatever it is you're going to do. You, you set some goals for yourself, whether that's I want to see what's down this hole or over that hill or in that building. If you want to find out what is in every room in the pyramid, go for it. Um, if, you know, the overlord can wait. There was another good Penny Arcade story with, you know, the comic with the, you know, I'm going to avenge my father's death right after I play with this toy and, you know, pet this kitty and do whatever. I forget which game that was. That was a really older comic of theirs. But, I mean, with any sort of sandboxy type game, uh, you, you kind of run into that where the players can lose focus and have a grand old time with some game that is like, you know, supposedly you're out to do X world meaningful task, but the players are having so much fun doing something else that, okay, have at it. If that's what you want to do, go for it. And if... You know, the game is not terribly expensive. It's not a $60 game that you're buying. This isn't uh, something that, you know, has five hours of content for 60 bucks. If you want to go in and spend 10 hours just roaming around and having a grand old time shooting stuff, and that's Keith and I refer to that as kind of bubble-popping fun, where, you know, it's fun to just shoot stuff sometimes. And, you know, I love playing... You know, for instance, like Far Cry 2, uh, there's a story there. I couldn't care less about it. I just like shooting guys in the jungle. I, I'm sorry. That's just, it's fun. You know, and, you know, you get the rocket launcher and go blow up a hut every so often. That is fun. And the story just kind of loosely exists to kind of pull me along so I can go shoot guys in the jungle. And there are players who are going to approach this game from that standpoint on whatever difficulty level they choose, and I'm cool with that. That's their prerogative. I've done it with other games myself. Some of them will eventually get bored of that, and they have two options. They can either say, well, that's all there was to this game. I had a good time. It was worth my while. I'm going to stop playing. Or they can say, you know... (laughs) What about all those missions and stuff that I kept running past? <laughs> Maybe I'll see what happens if I try some of those. And, you know, so then at that point, they hopefully graduate into playing, you know, you know, get on with it. You know, let's actually play the, the core game here. And that doesn't frustrate me at all. As long as they're having fun, great. Right. 
Now, uh, for, for me, it's what sets this apart from something like Minecraft, which never really worked for me. I, I just love how goal-oriented uh, Valley Without Wind can be. Uh, I, I love the different tiers of tasks. Um, I, I love that here's this vast, infinite world, and there is one specific thing I need to get from one specific place, and I'm going to go there. Uh, I, I, I like I, I just really admire how you direct players through that infinity. Uh, and I just hate to think that some people miss that sense of purpose and goal by not reading text that you've given them and not using the tools that you've provided. Uh, so, and, and that's, that's your personality, though, too. It, it, it's different players. It's, it's really surprising. I mean, it really shouldn't be, but just... Player personalities vary so much. Well, and, and, and also, I just want to specify real quick. Like, I, I totally understand people who just want to explore. What gets me is people who will write this off as, oh, there's nothing to find. There's no reason to explore. And uh, that's a shame. But and I'm that's a shame, and that's so unfair, by the way. And, I, and that's a failing of somebody not, you know, people don't read documentation. Uh, and that, that's a failing on the, the person's part and not your part. And I, I just, that's what rubs me the wrong way. And, and you know, and that's, that's going to happen. And, and, and it, it's frust- that part frustrates me, too, for sure. And, you know, you get the, oh, this is just a Terraria ripoff or whatever or something. It's like, right. well, uh, they're both from the side view, uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, the uh, you know, there's there's always going to be unfair stuff that comes with the territory. My blood pressure goes up, and then I just have to kind of let it go. Right. But the um, I, I feel like if we just continue making it better and better to where people are hopefully continuously talking about it and saying, wow, look at this cool new thing that's in there now, and maybe we figure out how to handle some of the characterization stuff better. And, you know, we still have hopes of doing, you know, some procedural storytelling stuff at some point. Boy, that's going to be an undertaking, but we want to take another (laughs) crack at it. I don't know that we're going to be more successful the next time, but at least we want to give it a go. And, Uh, you know, hopefully with that, the word of mouth eventually gets those people that wrote it off prematurely to go, well, damn it, maybe I'll finally go back and give that a look. And it's like, oh, hey, you know. Right. And then finally, here's a tool that I think is fantastic. Uh, It took a little bit of getting used to because I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it, but it is now instrumental. It's key to part of why I'm digging Valley Without Wind is because of this tool, and that is... This, this funky little mapping system that you have. You know, everybody is used to a, to a map being a, a miniaturized representation of the world, and instead your map is kind of like a, a graph or a chart. Um, it's it's more abstract. Uh, when I first saw it, I was like, what? What am I looking at? It's a cutaway view of a skyscraper. I don't understand. And then I read those eight little, you know, you, you sum it up nicely in eight little dialogue boxes that you can click through. Uh, and I love that map now. Like, I use that map to zip in and out of, of, of dungeons or, or to find caves or to work my way across the world. I love your little mapping system there. Uh, and it's unique. I don't recall seeing anything like that. Um, so uh, huge thanks for, for the mapping system. Uh, it thanks. really helps drive the gameplay for me. You know, with a combination of those goals and using that map, to meet those goals, and even, Chris, how in, I think it's just the assassination mission, but when that map is taken away from me, I appreciate <laughs> it all the more. I love that map even more. Oh, no, maybe it's a rescue mission, but at any rate, there are some missions where you don't get the map, uh, and it just makes me realize how awesome that map is. 
<laughs> yeah, the assassination one takes away the dungeon map, and the rescue ones take away the chunk map, the mini map. Right. Uh, was yeah. is that at all a sticking point? Do you find that 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 the people are wrapping their heads around that fairly easily, or is that is that a difficult thing? Do you feel? Um. Early on in, we had some people early in beta that were really having trouble with it. And I think that we learned how to present it better. And uh, at PAX East, um, we also uh, had a chance to, to really show it to a lot of people and learn how to explain it really briefly. Mm-hmm. And uh, w- one of the things that happens when you go into one of the early buildings in the intro mission, which is you know kind of the tutorial thing, is it gives you like a two-line explanation of the map of, like, I forget exactly how it's worded, but it's brief and to the point and what we learned to tell people at PAX East and then they were just like, oh, okay, they didn't get the entire concept of it, why is one room bigger than another and stuff, but they got enough of it to use it, and then if they later want the full details of, what is a graph versus a map, then they can click in the little question mark thing and find out those details, but um, you know, that's been something that uh, just just through player testing, we've we've managed to work that out. It, it initially was a sticking point, but, but I, I really don't think it has been uh, since the last month or so in particular. Um, and I will say that part of the reason that uh, went with that sort of mapping system is that it's uh, enormously condensed and uh, older games like uh, Maniac Mansion and some of those other ones back in the regular Nintendo uh, era uh, they had side view, quasi side view sorts of uh, setups that were representing 3D space Mm -hmm. and the only way to to map those, they didn't have in-game maps back then. Or you know, talking about the final dungeon in Zelda 2, you had to make your own maps in a notebook. And so I, you know, it's oh, yeah. eight or nine years old, I'm sitting there with my, <laughs> you know, notebook and piece of paper, and you know, I'm trying to figure out how to fit all these freaking rooms on the uh, on this piece of paper. And so you know, once you keep getting too many rooms, it's like, okay, how do I draw the representations between all these and make it so that they're spatially, you know, clear? And so that sort of thing, you know, became something that I just started doing naturally. And so uh, when we went back to that, then it then it became natural again. If you look at like Metal Gear Solid or something or uh, Metroid Prime, those have those 3D maps that you can rotate, and I find those really difficult oh, to use. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. 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 They could use a graph like this yep. to represent a 3D game like that because the you know pers- the the perspective doesn't matter. You could represent Metal Gear Solid 2 or Metroid Prime 3 their levels with this sort of graph in a two-dimensional format that in a lot of respects would be easier to get around in. Um, uh, Fez does something similar. Like Fez has a big mapping screen that I just can't make any sense of and I, I wish they had some stylized abstract uh, approach to, huh. to that map. Uh, I love the idea that the mapping in Valley Without Wind can be traced all the way back to an eight-year-old Chris Park agonizing over Zelda 2. You know? <laughs> and, and thus, Valley Without Wind's mapping system was born. <laughs> uh, so, McMaster, I'm sorry we've uh, excluded you for so long, but tell me a bit about how, what, what, is, what has it been like jumping into this game? Um, well, I, I actually purchased it when it was still in um, beta. 
Um, and I, uh, I hadn't played a lot of it until recently. I, mean, I just hadn't had any time. Uh, but I, uh, the first thing I really, really, uh, noticed about the game is that it, it has an interesting art style. And the thing about it is, like, you don't really get a good feel of the game unless you see it in motion. Um, screenshots don't really do it justice yeah. because it's, it's, it's really smooth. Uh, it's really fluid. Uh, uh, but anyway. Um, and, uh, it, it's interesting. You certainly do have to pay attention to uh, the cues uh, in the beginning, or you can just wander around, I guess, doing nothing for, uh, I mean, ever. But uh, but it's, uh, I, I certainly, I guess the biggest, like, feeling I get from is it really does remind me of, like, a Castlevania, uh, like Symphony of the Night, something like that, just the, the way the game feels and moves. But it's also got the, the placeable platforms, um for uh, exploration uh, and stuff like that. So roughly, like, would, would, if you were to boot it up now, McMaster, like, where where would your character or world be? Like, like, do you have a sense for like what things you're trying to accomplish when you play? Not really. Um, still. Like, well, here, let me ask you this, McMaster: uh, Are you gravitating towards <laughs> one specific type of attack, for instance? Uh, you know, I really like the lightning attack. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, the death cloud amuses me, uh, but I seem to have things like punching it back at me a lot. Uh, the death cloud's weird. Like the if I if it's the one I'm thinking of, it's like really slow, but but it, it yeah. hits really hard. Like I get a right. sense as I level up some of these skills. When you first look at them, you're like, oh yeah, lightning, fire, water, whatever. But as you level them up and look at the stats and play with them. I, I love how each one sort of interacts with the environment a different way. Each one fires a different sure. way. You know, the water going along surfaces versus the fire just going straight out in the air or the death cloud speed. Uh, I, I get a good sense for there's there's a variety here that I have to discover. Um, and, and then customize that, too. I should add, the, the longer you play, the more enchants you unlock. Mm-hmm. And so right. if, you, in, if you equip something that really enhances your uh, attack speed, for instance, like the speed of your shots, right. then yeah. that uh, the Creeping Death, the Death Cloud, um, that one, you could have it move uh, you know, 40% or 80% faster. Or I could already have lightning that goes super fast. Like, like do I use that to strengthen a, an advantage or to compensate for a weakness? Yeah. Uh, exactly. And you could also say, okay, well, lightning already goes fast enough. I want to buff up my lightning elemental attacks and get extra power so that it's more approaching what Creeping Death would have done. Right. And there's a bunch of other things that you can do as well, like make the mana cost slower so you can have or cooldowns lower one or the other depending on what's most needed so you can have a better sustained rate of fire. You can turn uh, stuff into kind of machine gun shots. It's, there's a lot of things that you can you can't customize what you're actually crafting, but based on the the procedural loot that you get in terms of the enchants, you can totally customize the effects that you're getting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, McMaster, what, uh, have you made much progress on the, uh, the continent map, or are you still sort of in the exploring phase? I'm still kind of exploring. Uh, yeah, I'm still kind of exploring. Uh, what, what I, what, it, what struck me, Chris, so I'm, I'm kind of stalled in a way, and I, I, 
I, I'm at the point where I'm like, you know, I think I should reboot. Because when I first jumped in, I was just doing missions. Like, okay, there's a mission. I'm going to do that. Oh, there's another mission. I'm going to do that. Oh, I'm going to do that. But, whoa, my continent just got more difficult. <laughs> like, uh, you have this thing where if you pursue missions, you are kind of like AI war. You're boosting the difficulty level as you go. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of at a point now where my continent's like at tier five, but my my skills are down around tier three, so I have to push into missions or, or try to search to get the crafting materials to raise my skills. I kind of feel like I pushed a little bit too hard, and now the continent is pushing too hard back at me. So I, I feel like, okay, you know what, I, I want to give up on this continent and move to the next one. Uh, but I'm not quite, almost as a point of pride, I'm not quite ready to, to give up yet. Uh, that's a tricky That's a tricky situation. Usually... Uh you you do have to be careful with watching the the feedback that's getting you know, oh, yeah. getting progressively more difficult and it's like eh whatever let's keep doing this well that's because <laughs> uh, I, I don't feel like you're punishing me I feel like I've made my bed and now I'm going to have to lay in it uh, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a great game that uh, Soldak Entertainment a company uh, fellow named Stephen Peeler makes these cool action RPGs and one of them is called Din's Curse and oh, one yeah. of and one of the things you can do in Dim's Curse, where, where you start a, a world, and it's a town and the dungeon underneath it, and there's a button you can eventually press, which is Abandon Town, where you realize it's gotten too difficult for you. Uh, you people are on your own. I'm going to move on to the next town. <laughs> My bad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I kind of want a button like that in uh, Valley Without Wind. But I think if I just... Like, if I start a new... Is there any way to, uh, to do that, to bail on a continent, or should I just start a new world? Um, there's not a way to bail on an entire continent at the moment, but you can start on the second continent. Um, if you do an expert start, then it starts you on the second continent with a bunch of stuff unlocked, and so you get, like, lava flats and Utah raptors and all these other different things that you haven't seen yet and a bunch of other mission types and stuff. Um, well, part of it, too, is that I, I – and, again, this is back to the, the issue with the character – is I, I, I'm not sure if I – like, I know I've leveled up skills, and I kind of want to keep those, but they're not really my character, so I don't really know, should I expect to keep those? Is this part of the continent? Um, so I'm, I'm a little – part of the reason that I don't want to just restart is I'm a little unclear on what things I sh- feel that I should keep and shouldn't – or that I should lose if I start a new continent. Uh, the enchants in particular carry over, and then any other sort of random supplies like uh, wooden platforms or the crates that you use to stack outside or uh, any other kind of like spell scrolls, like if you have glyph transplant scrolls that you've been finding, or, you know, things right. like that. Uh, the actual spells themselves uh, that you've upgraded and the materials that you've collected that went into the settlement stockpile, you retain those when a new continent opens up. You can go back to the first continent and keep using those. But when you go to the second continent, you get to start, you have to slash get to start fresh. Um, right. it's, 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 it's kind of a mix. It's, it's like a new game plus in that you get to play again, but you get to make different choices. So you're not forever stuck with something that maybe you're not as happy with having decided, you know, Later on, um, you know, I will say also the position that you're in is one that's recoverable, uh, especially if you emphasize, you know, the secret missions or some right. of the specific types of uh, specific types of missions that might be uh, that you might be better at, or you know, there, there's various things that you can do to recover from a bad uh, position, like in AI War, and this is a game where 
you it's, it's impossible to completely lose. You could certainly stall yourself out to where you lose the will to continue and want to just start a new world, but it's impossible to outright just, you have failed, we're sorry, you're done. Um, and so there's always things that can be done, but like a lot of guys are going to go through the meat grinder probably if, if your position gets <laughs> bad enough. Well, and the game makes that very clear. Like, I know exactly what materials I need to get my fireball up to level 5. Like, I and I've got those on my checklist, and I know where to find them. Like, you know, I know to go out into a desert and to try to get to the second level of a cave, because that's where I'm going to find the, uh, not the map, maybe rubies or something. Like, that's where I need to find the exact resources that I'm lacking to get my fireball up there. Uh, so it's just sort of like there are all these fun things that I would kind of rather do. Like I want to play more of those battlefield missions. I love those. Uh, but until I'm, I, you know, I'm not quite ready to do some of the missions until I've gotten my fireball up there. So uh, again, it's not a, it's not a ding on the game because I got myself in this situation and I feel like next time I play, I'm going to be able to play so much smarter. Uh, and that continent better watch out because I know exactly how to beat it. Uh, <laughs> and that's that's something that I always like to emphasize in any of the games that we do is is that the, give the player an opportunity to show their own cleverness. And to some extent, that's a double-edged sword because you can, it, you know, if, if, if your choices matter, then ergo you can have some bad stuff happen to you if you make poor choices or you have good stuff happen to you if you make good choices. If nothing bad ever happens to you based on your choices, then de facto your choices don't actually matter and you can just do whatever the heck you want and it works out anyway. And so that's that's kind of the double edged sword of, well, you know, we want people to succeed and we want people to feel good about how things are going, but at the same time, you know, it's uh you know it's, you want there to be some strategy to it and some brain power involved, and, and and not to say that you didn't use it, but there's also a learning curve uh, depending on exactly what difficulties you set it on and so forth. You can always crank the difficulty down to yeah. Rate, oh, too. I know. I see that when I'm back in the settlement, and I'm like, do I do I really? Can I do that? Do I, can I bring myself to do that? Have I failed? <laughs> uh, yeah. There's always that escape thing. So in terms of like abandoned content, there's kind of the you know, boy, the Penny Arcade comic references here are stacking up, but it's like, come on, Mario, you can do it with the Goombas. And he's, like, standing next to the one-foot-tall, uh, you know, uh, in-level in, in flag because he's got that embarrassing, uh, you know, golden leaf that they give you in the new Super Mario Brothers games where it's like, you've died eight times. Here, have a leaf. Just Here, you can go right through it. You'll make you invincible and you can fly infinitely. Go for it. You know, we should get, it's like thanks. I wasn't doing that bad. Come on, but I mean, you know, it's it's uh, so there's some of that that goes on too, where you know you can you can crank it down to featherweight if you like, and it's not very hard, and that's one way to get past the continent without giving up the progress that you've had or just starting another world. Because okay. if I do that, don't tell anyone that I did it. <laughs> yeah. that between us. We'll just say that you know you got. You you pulled an awesome feat of stealth, and uh, I'm terrified that you're going to put an achievement on my Steam account or something. <laughs> <laughs> there are no achievements related to the difficulty because, you know, when it comes right down to it, we want people to have fun. If it's a matter of, you know, you got yourself in this situation, you're like, darn it, this is not where I want to be, and now I have the choice of, well, I could grind for five hours and overcome it, and it wouldn't be any fun. 
or I could start a whole new world, but then I lost these certain things that I built up, and that's not very fun, or eh, maybe I'll just stop playing. Those aren't very good options. If there's another option of, you know what, I have learned from what I did, you know, I can turn the difficulty down for a little while and make it so that things, you know, that compensates for a mistake that I made, and now it's fun again. I get through this one part and then crank the difficulty back up to where I want it to be. You know, does the difficulty have at it. affect anything in the world, like my reward level or anything? Nope. No. Oh, come on. Oh, Chris. Oh, please say yes. Oh, rats. I wish you hadn't. I wish you hadn't told me that. <laughs> yeah, the. I mean, that's the thing is that the difficulty. Uh, I forget. I think it's. I forget which one it is. Dungeon Defenders or something that has the nightmare mode that everybody. I, I've got players that come to my forum to vent about the nightmare mode in that game. I think it's Dungeon Defenders. Right. Um, and you know where a bunch of the loot and stuff you can only get if you play on this insanely crazy difficulty level. Right. And that's the thing. I'm. To each their own. It's not something that I would do in a game of my own, where if you want to play on the easiest difficulty or the hardest difficulty level, it's because that's what would challenge you. But you're and, not... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And, and that is that is an intrinsic motivation of it's more fun when I play at X difficulty level, so that's where I'm going to play. I like it when the... I'm so good at dodging enemies that I like it when they pretty much one-shot me, you know? Uh, I'm so mechanically oriented, though. Like, I feel there should be some incentive and reward uh, for making a game more difficult. And that's certainly the modern way of thinking, but I think that's a fad. I really, really do. Uh, and maybe that's just because, in some ways, I'm a child of the 80s, but the... Why do we need to gamify every last everything? Well, because it's a game. Because it's a video well, game. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. But I mean, that's the wider societal thing. Of let's gamify this. Let's make right. it, let's make these extrinsic rewards for every last little thing. You did a good thing. Here's a cookie. And you know, in a lot of what we do with a valley without wind, there is that throughout, sure. But in terms of skill level, are we going to punish you more because you suck, or are we going to really let you lord it over everybody else because you're awesome? I mean, yes, yes. the latter one, yes. The former one, no. Like I, I think, I, and it's it's kind of a semantic issue. But but I, I don't think you should punish people for sucking. But I think you should reserve some reward for people who are really good and who are really willing to climb that level curve. Like there should be something waiting at the top of the level curve, other than you know, the view from higher on the level curve. Uh, well, and this is, a, this is a philosophical discussion, and I completely respect and understand your perspective. And as a game designer, I think you're probably making the right choice. Uh, but as a, as a player, and this is just my own bag, I want there to be some reason for me to make the game more punishing and more difficult. Uh, I want some incentive. I want either an experience point bonus or, you know, extra gold or like Dungeon Defenders. I want that awesome loot waiting for me at the top of the difficulty curve. Give me a reason to go up there. Otherwise, you know what? I'm just going to stay at the bottom and faff about. Uh, well, and here's, I mean, and I hear that, and, and I think that there's a lot of validity there, and I think there's probably a lot of players that agree with you. Um, and one of the things that we've talked about doing uh, to kind of address that is to put in some cosmetic rewards of things saying, look, see, I did this. Mm -hmm. You know, here's my picture from the top of Mount Everest or whatever. Mm -hmm. And there are a few uh, uh, 
personality buildings, which you wouldn't have gotten to yet because it was around Continent 2 and above. But uh, there are a few of the ones. There's like this floating citadel thing in this big, wicked-looking castle that uh, you can build in your town that you can only get if you do these really difficult things. I mean, we've got those already, and those are, in a lot of respects, cosmetic. They do have a gameplay function once they're there, Mm -hmm. but you're not missing anything by not having them either. And the... We do plan to do some more of that, but in terms of like functional loot, like a sword that's actually you know helpful or you know thirty percent of the content of the game or whatever else, what you wind up doing is incentivizing everybody to play on the hardest mode, and everybody shouldn't be because because here's the thing is if if you've got a mode that's supposed to be your most difficult mode, mm-hmm. some really tiny percentage of your players are only going to be the ones that actually have fun playing that mode. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that you want to play it because they're going to have fun playing it, and oftentimes the developers fall into that category of they are so good at it that they they fall into that category of playing it. Everybody else, you want to actively discourage from playing that mode. Don't play that mode. It's not fun. If you're not that good at the game, don't play. If you are that good at the game, play that mode because that's the game. You know, you want to play the mode that is fun for you and not be in a backhanded or overt fashion be punished for playing at whatever it is you're playing at. Yep. Now, and, now, and that's that's hard. That's that's a challenging thing. And I don't think that we necessarily have it perfect, but uh, I'm, I'm erring on the side of the majority of players at the right. expense potentially of the super hardcore. And, and they can conquer the, you know, we call it the chosen one mode. We have players who play on it. And they can conquer that and go, see, I'm conquering this and just ripping it up here versus you're struggling at, you know, hero or whatever level. And and that's something they're proud of. And and, but, and yeah, I just want to, as a, as a counterpoint, because, again, I completely understand both sides of the issue. Uh, but as, as a counterpoint, those guys playing on the chosen one level, like, like they're not given any in-game incentive to do that. Uh, and, and you say that that's because you don't want to punish people who don't want to play on the chosen one level, and I respect that. But just as a counterpoint, I want to bring up an example of a company that, that is completely the opposite of your perspective and is not suffering for it commercially. And that is Blizzard with the Diablo games. You know, Diablo has these incredibly punishing, difficult, just, just, just cruel difficulty levels. And they give you an increased reward there. Like there are things that people who play Diablo on hardcore, immortal, hell mode or whatever, there are things they will see that a casual guy like me that I will never see. Um, and, you, you know, Blizzard, they're kind of the kings of making sure that a game is commercially palatable, that everybody can play it and like it, and they have no compunction with this thing that you're struggling with, rightly. Like, I completely understand your approach, but uh, part of me thinks, you know what, if Blizzard can do it, everybody should do it. <laughs> so, And I think that there's a lot of validity there. As well, I did not know that. I've actually never played a Diablo game, and gasp, but... Uh, oh, never played one, period. I thought you were going to say, I've never played one on hell mode. <laughs> I've never played one at all, actually, right. yeah. It's, um, 
Uh, I, I used to play a lot of Warcraft 2 and Warcraft 1, and those are actually the only Blizzard games I've ever played. I've never played an MMO. I've never played Diablo. I've never played World of Warcraft. Oh, Chris, or... Chris, stop. You're, you're squandering <laughs> your gamer cred. You're just defenestrating all of it as you speak. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I've played a lot of really hardcore stuff that other, you know, you know, I've played I Want to Be the Guy and a bunch of other stuff that is a lot more hardcore. Right. Uh, but it's just a matter of, there's a wide variety of things people can play, and not everybody plays everything, period. Um, no, we all have those little shame moments, that uh, things that we haven't played that we should have. So, yes, I yeah. And with some of these ones, I actively avoid World of Warcraft. And the reason why is it looks like too darn much fun. It's the same reason I haven't played Terraria. I will just... World of Warcraft will eat me alive, and I know it will. I'm not going near that thing with a 10-foot pole. It is it is crack cocaine, I can tell. Yep. And uh, it looks amazing, but I, you know, I, I know not to try and start smoking. I wouldn't be able to stop. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, it's just, you know, it would push all the right buttons for me, and I'd never get away. Who was so, the, uh, the French author, I think Moliere or someone, who uh, whenever he met a beautiful woman would say, well, there goes another novel I'll never write. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, so I can't comment on Diablo from first person, having actually played it in terms of the way they do it. Obviously, they know their stuff. One thing I would say is, mm-hmm. is a slight counterpoint to that is that, one, Blizzard has enormous momentum, so they can get away with stuff. True, yes. They, that they, other yeah. people can't. And potentially, like, the... Is it Dungeon Defenders? They may, obviously they're being commercially successful as well, but I wonder if they're suffering at all in a way that Blizzard is not because of the choices they've made. I can't comment. I don't know, but it makes me wonder. Uh, And then to go along with that also, uh, Blizzard, everything else that they're so good at, among them is they are the kings of balance. And so whatever the numbers are that they're using in terms of ways that they're balancing the difficulty and the rewards that they're getting, I'm betting you that no slam against the uh, Dungeon Defenders guys, but I'm betting you that Blizzard's balance is better. And uh, the Dungeon Defender guys or myself, the odds of us getting the balance to the level that Blizzard has to where it's just that pure distilled crack cocaine – is relatively low. I mean, they've they've got ridiculous amounts of manpower and data and years of experience of making crack cocaine, and uh, the idea that that we can swoop in and duplicate that easily is, hmm, I don't know. Even looking at the fact they. If it was that easy to duplicate, a lot of people would be doing it, I think. Well, I will say, Chris, in support of the case you're making, that you shouldn't couple uh, a specific reward to the difficulty level. Now that you've told me that there's no such thing in Valley Without Wind, uh, and don't let this get out, but I think I now have no problem about going and changing that difficulty down a few levels to get past the continent. So take that as uh, as you will, uh, but you've sold me. So. Yeah, but I mean, I think I think that there needs to be a middle ground, and we are looking at doing more cosmetic stuff. There should be something for the people on the higher levels, and some achievements too. I have no problem giving out some achievements to people that they can go, "Ha ha! Look at this achievement that I got that you will never see because 
I did this thing. And well, wait, before you, before you add that in, let me get through this continent at the easy difficulty level. First. <laughs> so, so hold off on that. <laughs> All right, so uh, Valley Without Wind is out. Uh, is this your second week out? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, all right, doing well. Uh, I encourage folks to pick it up. It is it is nothing if not unique. <laughs> uh, and I find myself, uh, you know, I'll play it for a while, and I'll be like, okay, I'm done with this. I'm going to play something else. And then while I'm playing something else, I'll think, you know what, maybe I'll just go back in and just do a quick run into that cave I was looking at. And uh, it's one of those games that I think about a lot when I'm not playing it. So <laughs> That's very good. I guess we are getting... Getting better at making crack cocaine ourselves from from the uh, from some other people having said that too. <laughs> so, all right, that is your news story of the week, and it is a big one. Uh, let's move on to other news of the week. I'm not sure; it's kind of a slow week. McMaster, do you have news this week? I have some fantastic news this week. Good news, awesome, because mine is bad news. What is your good news? Well, it's not maybe not the great news, but it, it's interesting news. Mm-hmm. Uh, Microsoft is that not your news? I'm not scooping you, am I? Maybe you are, but I can make do if you are. Microsoft undercut competition. That one with the 99 buck 360 bundle that works like a cell phone plan. What? Yeah, I've heard about this shit. It's, no, it's brand just... new, so it's quite. It just broke today, I think. Uh, but no, uh, Microsoft. There's been a leak that they're going to do this thing where they'll sell a 360 with a Connect for ninety nine dollars, but you have to sign up for two years of gold at fifteen bucks a month. So it's like they're trying to go the whole cell phone like subscription route. There'll be like a penalty if you try to cancel before two years, etc. Et <laughs> and is this something that uh, you say this is a leak? Like, is this a rumor or this is a verified thing? This is a this is a rumor, but it seems to be being verified behind the scenes kind of thing. McMaster, would you sign up for any such deal? I, I have so many damned Xbox 360. <laughs> I, I don't think I need to. <laughs> I think I'm good now. <laughs> Let's say they're launching an Xbox 720. You can get it for 99 bucks. It will include Connect 2.0, and you will have to pay uh, for two years of Xbox Live. Would you go I, for that? Sure. I mean, see, but here's the thing about it that it gets a little, little crazy is that it's not 15 bucks a month. So they're really kind of making out a way if, if they get their contract to completion because what, what Live is what, 60 bucks a year? Right. So it's $5 a month. Uh, but through their subscription plan, you end up playing what? Paying what? Uh, another um, four hundred bucks, three hundred uh, some odd bucks. You know. Uh, so it's so, basically yeah. less money down up front, but they get you in the long run. Which anybody who looks at a plan like this should know that that's what they're in for. Yes. Right. I mean, but at the same time, if you look at it, it's about the same. It's actually, I think. It might come out a touch cheaper than purchasing at full price and then buying live for two years, mm. if you know what I mean. But like it, it's just like so minute. I think it just gives people a quick in right. to the Xbox, which is what they're looking for now. I mean, that just makes perfect sense. It's like they're they're trying to pull the PlayStation Two, or not just throw them everywhere. You know, <laughs> like a, I don't know anybody that didn't own more than at least one PlayStation Two. And is, according to this rumor, is this something they're going to announce at E3? Do we know? Uh, I do not know. All right. Well, we'll see if this comes through. Uh, yeah. I, too, have so many Xboxes. Uh, uh, this isn't something yeah. I need. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I might get one for the fun of it or something. You know, but <laughs> I don't think I have 
<laughs> just an, an impulse buy when you're in line at Best Buy. You see that in the little aisle, and you're like, yeah, I'll pick one up. Yeah. <laughs> along with these. these and just, yeah, drop that down. Yeah, along <laughs> yeah. with these, uh, I'll take also these corn nuts and this copy of my super ex-girlfriend on Blu-ray. And then, like, you know, if I could, if I could just walk into a Best Buy for ninety-nine bucks and give that to somebody as a gift if they wanted to use it or not, I would be happy to do that. Right. Here's a gift you now owe Microsoft for two years. <laughs> yeah. By the way, <laughs> my gift to you is indentured servitude to Bill Gates. Yeah. Yes. Uh, all right. So that's McMaster's news of the week. My news of the week, not. Uh, I don't. I guess I don't know if this is good news. Let's see what you guys think. Uh, so, Call of Duty Black Ops Two oh, has yeah. got all this like future tech. It has like mechs and little floating recon drone robotty kind of things, and uh, I think I think maybe laser guns and starfighters. Um, oh. So, their traditional appeal is this kind of quasi realistic, Clancy esque hardware porn. Uh, you know, gun porn. That's been the traditional Call of Duty shtick, and they're pushing it into the future. Um, yeah, let's ask uh, Dice how that works. See how that worked out for them. Oh, that, uh, what was that one called? Uh, Battlefield 2042 or something like that. And like, alright, whatever. AKA <laughs> Tribes. Yeah, yeah. They just... Yeah, it's, you know, the people don't play the, at least to me, I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of, uh, Interest in the, the future warfare thing, yeah, yeah. Like Black Ops being based like in the in the like what sixties, seventies, maybe eighties. Uh, like uh, that seemed to like hit a niche that had not been hit recently. Well, I think uh, what's going on here is that the modern warfare is just going to be that straight up modern warfare you know it's appropriately named whereas with black ops they'll do fancy things like going back in history and going forward in time uh so i'm guessing that's the horses in there too there is apparently yes there's a horseback riding sequence but i imagine that computers and laser guns will be involved with the horses yes (laughs) so it's call of duty cowboys and aliens okay well i think it's (laughs) call of duty like knights of sidonia by muse that would be awesome. I like that, McMaster. I like that. That lot. would be rad. <laughs> I am now totally on board. You've just won me over, McMaster. The space <laughs> western. <laughs> that would be sweet. Which just brings it back to what a fire or that Serenity, that Firefly thing that, that yeah. you kids love. Yeah, uh, that's a good show. All right, so that's our uh, news of the week. Let's now transition to games of the week. Uh, why don't you kick us off, McMaster? What do you what have you chosen for your game of the week? We know one thing that it's not. What is it in fact? Alright, well basically since our last podcast all I've played is Age of Empires Online. So it's pretty much really all I can talk about for the most part. Which is kind of sad because I'm terrible at real time strategy games. But apparently it's got its hooks in you. You're you're still with it. Like you're you're uh you're what, yeah. leveling, you're leveling up your Celtic city, is that what's going on? Yeah, I'm almost level twelve now. Um I you know, I've been playing a good bit and my only real problem is the skirmish mode because like I I don't know what it is. It just seems like I, I don't get it. There's too many moving parts or something. Uh it just uh it kind of confounds me. Uh, uh, you you did you approached me for advice here as your as your RTS Obi Wan, 
Young, young, you are my young Padawan at, at skirmish mode in Age of Empires Online. So a couple things you can do. Uh, be careful which AI dude you're, you're facing against. Right. Because unlike a lot of skirmish modes, they're, they're a little bit puzzly in Age Online. So uh, maybe play. There's one guy who's like a turtle, and he won't be so aggressive. He'll let he's the advisor. Yeah, he's like the general advisor dude. Yeah, he's the one that I, I have the best success rate at. There you go. So play him on a smaller map, maybe turn down the AI. Uh, although, unlike uh, certain games, you do not, if you, depending on where you set the AI, that will determine the level of reward. <laughs> so See, that's, I can't drop it because, like, I'm, it's not even that. It's like I'm afraid if I drop it to the lowest and I lose it that, that I'm just going to jump out of, like, my window. Or something. I just I don't think I can handle it. Well, it's like your, a, it's, your, it's your difficulty issue. <laughs> here's another thing that it does is that each of the AI personalities, uh, one of the missions that you get, and if you beat the mission, you get a special advisor card, right. which is pretty useful. You have to beat the AI on standard mode, one versus right. one. So that, that's the point is that if you want to accomplish that mission, you know, you get experience points anyway, but if you want to specifically accomplish that mission, you need to leave the difficulty on standard. Uh, right. so, so another thing, I don't know if you know this, uh, one of, I wrote maybe, uh, three, four years ago, whatever, when Crispy Gamer, a site, was still around, I was doing a uh-huh. column on real-time strategy games, and I think I did something like the ten rules of getting better at real-time strategy games, one of which is, remember these three simple letters, McMaster. You ready for this? Alright, alright, alright. A, B, V, always be villagering. Okay. <laughs> Never be not making a villager. Well, I just I just made it sound really retarded and clunky. Never not train <laughs> a villager. Never be not villa whatever. Always be training a villager is what I'm saying. Uh, a common mistake, and it's too bad you don't have little uh, post-game graphs in Age of Empires Online because I can always see in a good RTS that has a good debriefing, I can always see where I stop making my villagers and where my economy starts to plateau. Uh, so that's the dirty little secret of any econ-driven RTS, and that's certainly what Age of Empires Online is, is that you always constantly want to be pushing up your uh, your, your economy. Um, Have they still not put in uh, looping build queues yet in there? No, you can't do that simply because... And I kind of understand some games let you do this, like uh, Big Huge's Rise of Legends and Rise of Nations. They've been awesome about it, but... What happens is that you can kind of gimp your economy. Like you can get to the point where you suddenly have no resources and you're not making any resources because you've queued up so many units. Um, right. So yeah, like I I use that, but I think letting a new player do that can hurt the new player sometimes, Chris. Uh, and Age of Empires Online is is very clearly aimed at I don't want to say casual gamers, but no, it uh, really is. It, it wants it wants to be friendly. Uh, and so those loops can be uh, very unfriendly. But, yeah, I, I love That's it. That's true. That's true. I've been, you know, it's funny with Age of Empires Online, I've been telling people that aren't good at, like, RTSs to give it a shot because uh, maybe they'll, you know, it's got a lot of uh, hold-your-hand uh, tutorial missions. Right, right. Um, but there's a lot of depth, too. I mean, And we really need is. more of that, I have to say. I mean, I'm on totally into the spectrum in the kind of RTS games I make, obviously, but I think... We really need, you know, essentially the gateway drugs there, which, you know, where people can 
Video 5 strategy games are just cool, and more people would play them if they weren't just thrown into the deep end of the pool all the time. Right. Well, you, you, you say that, Chris, but I, I can't think of many RTSs that really do that. Like, I think of StarCraft II and Age of Empires Online, which I think are the most recent big AAA RTSs, both of, of which have very friendly single-player campaign modes. Um, so, so I think I most RTSs know I played that. those two, but uh-huh. it, my beef with, like, I've played lots of campaign modes in older ones. Mm-hmm. My beef, and tell me if this has changed, was that the relationship between the skills that you learn in the little campaign tutorial type things was really not uh, – you're learning how to do specific tasks but never how to put it all together. And so by the time you're ready to go, like, go skirmish or something, you're by definition being dumped into the deep end, and if you try and play online, somebody's just going to come crush you. You're definitely right there, and that I think RTSs could do a better job of. I said this on last week's podcast when I was talking to Kevin Perry, who's the producer now on Age of Empires Online, is that RTSs have the uh, unfortunate task of having to make three separate games. And it's a single player campaign, a skirmish mode, and a multiplayer game. Uh, and one of the problems is that, except for the skirmish and the multiplayer mode, uh, those two relate, but relating the single-player campaign to the other two ways to play is, is always a difficult thing, and, and not many RTSs do that very well. So yeah, I thought I, Warcraft I, 2 nailed it, and that was... Uh, <laughs> You're you so old school. I love that about I'm you. I'm so old school. Yeah, well, I thought it really nailed it, and I've played a lot of ones since, and I don't feel like as many did it, and did it as well. And, uh, you, you know, Warcraft 2 was uh, one where they... They set you up with simple situations on pretty small maps, but they still gave you lots of freedom to shoot yourself in the foot, and you would, but you wouldn't in such a way that you felt so frustrated you'd just stop. And, uh, you know, some of these newer ones, like <laughs> like Age of Empires 1 or 2, these newer ones, these newfangled things from the late <laughs> 90s, uh, <laughs> They they were so handholdy where it's like okay now left click over here and your guys will walk and okay now it's time for you know some talking now and uh, make sure and this this guy needs to not die and you know Mister Super Horseman and normally you don't have a Super Horseman when you're playing skirmish mode or multiplayer or whatever you're just Sure, whatever. Let your guys die. It's it's in service of your ultimate goals and. Well, and I, I- yeah, so it's just it's an interesting thing, and that's a huge ding too against StarCraft Two for for me. Is that StarCraft Two is such this finely honed online multiplayer RTS, and that single player campaign will do nothing to teach you how to get good at that or how to play that. And furthermore, it can be harmful because it's introducing you to all these really cool units like medics and stuff, and there's no sign of that stuff in the multiplayer. So you play that single-player campaign, and you're like, yeah, awesome. And then you jump in multiplayer, and you're suddenly missing all these great units you were playing with. Uh, it's insane. And, and so Age of Empires Online suffers from something similar in that great single-player stuff. You're grinding to level up your units. Um, but all that stuff is missing in multiplayer. So. Yeah. Well, that's uh, all right. Like a step in the right direction, though. Well, there. You know what? I think they're appealing to a specific audience, and that is people who want to just 
plink around and watch cool units do stuff and they've gotten better but but clearly their 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 main target audience is people who just want to like build a city and advance their units and equip their dudes with loot and make them better uh and i don't say that to denigrate it i just say that's that's what they do well and that's kind of what they focus on well, you know, and in skirmish mode, you only have access to technologies that you, other than base units, uh, that you have unlocked up until age four. Like, you can get the basic units whenever you click to that age uh, in skirmish mode, but you don't get, like, the, the berry picker bonus or whatever from, like, you know, your uh, storage house or any of the, like, upgrades. You have to actually purchase those with your civilization and age online. In the skirmish, right, right. Right, right. I, you know, PvP, no earthly idea, but at least the, the skirmish and everything. Is. Well, and that's the other thing I was like going to tell you. Cities and since it, in Age of Empires 3, that was, you know what? It's that not, was a cool addition. It's that not, was a cool addition. It's not quite like that. It's similar to that, but there's a lot of, it's more that uh, they're uh, sort of keeping content away from you until you've advanced to it like the home cities in age three i loved that because you could tweak and change your races you could you could emphasize what made your race stronger or you could try to compensate for a weakness there was just a lot of tweaking and customization in those cards that you unlocked and the decks that you built here it's more a matter of you don't get the upgrades like like uh, mcmaster just mentioned the berry picker upgrade you know you don't get that stuff until you pay to unlock it um, so it's more of a sense of in order to really fully realize what this race can do, you kind of have to play the single player to unlock it. So, so McMaster, that's another thing I would recommend for the skirmish modes is that your city right. might not be high enough level. You might not have enough stuff unlocked to really tackle the guys at standard mode yet. You know, those are kind of like mid-level. You, you, the, the city level limit is 40, so I sort of feel like those are mid-game kind of things and you're still in the early game so maybe yeah that's going on. i know i just i have a hard problem with all week it's, right. it's weak well and plus you're just not as good as i am mcmaster ah <sighs> yes yes <laughs> yeah that's but that's why uh yeah rts is hard my game i mean it's weird because like one of my first favorite games ever had to be an rts one of the first was dune 2 uh, but I just kind of lost <laughs> all that's interest. That's old school. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I, I thought Chris was old school. Yeah, <laughs> a little a little Westwood action there, boys. No, uh, but uh, yeah, I uh, I just kind of uh, <laughs> Command and Conquer came out, and I didn't really uh, didn't really care that much for Command and Conquer for some reason. Yeah, you know what, McMaster? Just remember, always be villagering. And I do quite a bit. I just don't know, like, if there's a certain amount I should have on each, like, thing. Is there too many? Is there too few? You know what I mean? For doesn't gathering. matter. As long as there's one queued up, always be villagering. And, and you can – so there's also some really cool tricks you can do with selecting all the villagers on one resource to sort of move them to another resource or to keep them together. Uh, but whatever, just always be villagering. ABV. Also, McMaster? Put that coffee down. <laughs> Coffee's for closers. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, the, the thing I, like, I get confused about is, like, in StarCraft II, there was, like, a saturation point for the amount of workers you could have. In, yeah, there's, uh, there's no, there, that really isn't going on here. Like, you can pretty much put, the, the saturation point mechanic is all about when the resource runs out. Uh, right, right. Um, so you always have to be, like, building a new town center or moving your troops or, I mean, your peasants around. Uh, right. It just comes down to, like, 
I always like do okay at first, and then I always like eventually they just wear me down. Right. That's my biggest problem, I think. Yeah, I don't know. Usually right. with with myself, I find that I'm watching my towns and my villagers more than I am the battles. Just like yeah. send these guys off to fight and make sure they're in a good strategic. I mean, you know, put them in a good strategic position and then let them work out the tactics while I'm working on the economy because the economy requires such handholding in most of that kind of game. It's very econ heavy, and yeah, and that's the classic dilemma between micro and macro. And and right. to Age of Empire Online's credit, they don't require you to mess with micro a lot. Like a, a lot of it is once the armies have met and they're in position, you're pretty much out of the picture. Now you can finesse some yeah. stuff with cavalry doing end runs and keeping your druids or pre- priests safe, uh, but for the most part, it's not a micro intensive RTS well, like StarCraft yeah. Two. Luckily, because, like, yeah, that's, oh, God, that's what kills StarCraft 2 for me in the end. But anyway, like, yeah, it's it's not so bad uh, with uh, the troop AI seems to work really well. Yeah. Um, yeah. It seems to know what the target. It seems to know where to position itself. I don't have, like, archers running up and getting in melee and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's 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 uh, pretty clever, though I will admit, uh, Tom, that druid thing kind of confounded me at first, too. Like, why the hell are you in the middle of a melee when you're my healer? Because they're yeah, bruisers, they're bruisers and healers. They're they're fighter slash cleric dual classes. <laughs> yeah, the augur's pretty cool too. But but anyway, so uh, yeah, no, that's 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 it for me. All right, game of the week for uh, Jason P. McMaster is uh, Age of Empires Online. Uh, yes. Chris Park, let's get you in here second because I I spoiler I know what your game of the week is and I'm curious to hear about it. Uh, <laughs> tell us uh, what what have you picked? What have you been playing lately? That stands out for you. Well, so what I picked is uh, To the Moon, which uh, you know I know a lot of people have been saying a lot of positive things about it, and uh, uh, you know I don't I don't think people can really say too much positive about this one. It's a it's an indie title, uh, and it's hard to say a whole lot about it. It's the endless yeah. conundrum of anybody talking about this game because to say too much is to Worse than the experience for anybody else. Have you guys played it or? I have. Yes. No, I've watched the trailer and I actually really want to get it because it looks like a great story. I mean, I understand the basic concept, but I don't know how the story unfolds. Itself. Yeah, I saw one reviewer that had kind of dinged the game a little bit for saying that its central conceit of how it uh, uses the you know, kind of time travel mechanic, it's kind of quasi time travel mechanic where they're traveling through the, um, the memories of a person in reverse order and stuff, how that was kind of whatever, a stretch or something. It's like, you know, this is sci fi. I, I thought it was well done and, and well within the, you know, not deserving of criticism anyhow. Um, one thing that I thought was kind of interesting was that the guy, I think it's, is it Ken Gao who makes it? I, I, I may be butchering his name. Uh, but, uh, at any rate, the creator of it, I've, you know, watched some videos of, of his, uh, commentary and he's basically hoping to make this into kind of a series, uh, not all about the same, you know, patient or anything like that where you've basically got these two doctors, um, who are kind of, you know, lightheartedly wisecracking with one another and going through and trying to change the memories of uh, a person who's about to die. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they, 
they would essentially, I guess, be the the central things that carry on in this feature of, I guess, you'd find them doing this again for a different patient. And this particular game uh, has such a unique story that's based more around the patient than around the doctors. I mean, certainly they're they're an interesting characters, but the stuff that's going on with the patient and the other characters in his life and what you what you learn about his life as you go in reverse um, is really powerful and really just interesting in a, in a literary sense. You don't run into that very often in games. And I guess my one fear with this game in terms of a sequel would be that they... Well, certainly, the guy who made it really knows what he's doing. Um, but at the same time, to be able to duplicate this but with a whole other story, right? Uh, he's that, that's that's a tall order. Uh, I, I would be intimidated to, to try. Um, but that's then again, it's kind of like saying, "Well, Tom Clancy, your first book was great. Uh, we don't think you have any more in you, or something." So, I mean, that's kind of insulting to say too. If if this is his wheelhouse and he can do another story that's this, in the same sort of frame, but on a completely other topic, you know, wow, I look forward to it. I'll buy it. <laughs> it it's, a, it's, a, it's a dilemma that it's too bad more video games don't have, in that here was such a self-contained, emotionally powerful story, where are you going to go? You know, you you can't follow up on it. You know, like how would you make a sequel to Bastion, for instance? <laughs> you know, right. there there's some stories that are just really self-contained, really effective. There's nothing else to be said about this character. You're done. Uh, so what do you do? And I do like that he has this narrative framework. You know, those two doctors to try to in, in which to fit another story. But but yeah, I'm right. with you, Chris, and that I feel like, you know, maybe you should just do something entirely different. Just leave this behind. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting because it's a powerful storytelling mechanic uh, with the doctors going backwards in time in somebody's memory. And I wonder if it will be as powerful the second time, though. Right. Um, or with something that's not got quite so many twists. I mean, you know, you don't need a second memento after the first one. And, you know, no. you know the sixth sense, he never did follow that with anything that, that approached it in that Shyamalan. You, you know, it's just, it can be done. And this guy clearly is talented out the wazoo. So, you know, if, if he feels like he can do it, I don't think anybody should argue with him. But uh, um, this is a singular work in a lot of respects so he's going to be up against himself he's he set the bar for himself very very high um and it's it's difficult you know my wife and i've been playing it through it together um and uh have been really um enjoying it and uh she's a teacher and uh has dealt with some of the subject matter uh that comes up in there directly so we kind of figured out what was going on sooner than i think the story intended most people to <laughs> you, you guys are way too smart to play this game <laughs> no not at all it's just a matter of no i don't, I don't it's, like you, you, it's just a matter of what you've encountered in your life right exactly you, yeah and, and they used some key words that he was kind of foreshadowing uh, some stuff is like oh this is what this is and uh you know, I haven't finished it yet, actually, because we got into crunch with the value of that win and didn't have time to yet. So I'm looking forward to finishing the last, uh, you know, fifth of it or so and seeing how it all wraps up. But 
you know, it's, it's you know, it's really good. <laughs> uh, well, okay, Chris, so tell me if I am a cold-hearted bastard, because here's my take on, on To the Moon. Uh, I, I kind of like the story that's being told there, but I wonder if a video game is not whether a video game is an inappropriate way to tell this story, because I don't feel there's much game there. I feel about To the Moon the way I feel about Journey, which was a similar game. It was it was much more poetic. It was more about imagery, but there wasn't much gameplay there. You just move. You can jump. There's a very limited vocabulary of interaction with the world. And I feel like in To the Moon, I'm just walking the little avatar around to unlock little bits of conversation and text, and this pieces together a story. So part of what I feel is, well, why aren't I just reading this story? Um, and that kind of kills to the moon for me. Uh, am I am I just a cold-hearted bastard? Well, you can say yes. It's a fairly good point. I mean, in a lot of respects, um, in terms of you're right. Why not just do this as a uh, in, in some other medium? But uh, in terms of what this medium offers for what they're doing. Making it interactive means that you do have some agency. Yeah, it's not as full out as a lot of other games, but you have a combination of things. You've got a combination of music, mm-hmm. art. Which, by the way, I love the music. Laura mm-hmm. Shigihara, the chick that did Plants vs. Zombies, great soundtrack on this. Oh, yeah, I know. It's an amazing soundtrack. Yeah. So if you were just to read this as a story, uh, you would not have the music. You also wouldn't have things like sound effect cues that happen exactly at the right times to emphasize the world, uh, the words and so forth. So I, I read a lot. I love, I, you know, I wanted to be a novelist when I grew up. I failed at this. So I would be the first person to advocate for more novels in the world. Uh, but as a video game, uh, I feel like you get, or, you know, with a movie too, they're able to manipulate your emotions through visual imagery and, um, and, and uh, you know, the aural stuff, music, whatever other sort of sounds, you know, gunshot sounds in the background lightly make you on edge or, you know, whatever it is. And the same sort of thing is true here. So, okay, why not just make it a movie? What does a game offer that this wouldn't be able to do as a movie in a different fashion? Just make it a YouTube video of the same thing. Why not? And there is some player agency, though. It's true, your vocabulary for interacting with the world is pretty small. But you're able to go through and experience this at your own pace. Um, if you take a moment to go off the beaten track, there's little other thingies that you can pick up. You can examine little objects and find out little extra pieces of information that you could miss. That's not going to happen in a movie or in a book. You read it straight through, and the only reason you miss something is if you just look away or just skip a passage for some reason. And so that's where a you get this sense of place and of yourself being there, not about reading or watching somebody else being there through a game, which is what I think some of these more narrative games offer. And there's this whole um, visual no- novel uh, genre that, right. uh, you know, I know some great developers that do work in there that, uh, you know, I think it's underrated. I think that it's not your traditional video game, but I think that the 
the diversity is good. I don't want to make games like that myself. It's, in a lot of respects, the polar opposite of what I make. It's not about showing the player a way to, uh, you know, be clever themselves or anything like that. But it's a very poignant way to tell a story that you just you can't quite do that in any other medium, I don't think. And, uh, you know, I'd like to see that expanded further. Um, you know, you could argue Silent Hill, too, as well. It has some combat, but it's fairly clunky. Well, it's also and puzzles. Like, Silent Hill has a lot in common with adventure games, with inventory puzzles and stuff. Sure. Like, and that was also, their model. And so they've got the puzzles with the inventory stuff. There are puzzles into the moon as well. I don't know... Uh, you know, how far you played into it. But, you know, those puzzles aren't terribly difficult. Right. Um, but every time, you know, you move through a, uh, you know, you've got these little, uh, you know, you click at one of the little orbs on the side of a picture and it flips uh, all these boxes and uh, you want to get them all flipped the right way. And it's. <laughs> that drove me crazy, by the way. You're right. There is a game into the moon and I forgot. I hate the game. <laughs> So, you know. But you're right. They, they do. It's very. The Silent Hill comparison is definitely apt because there are these, some would argue, ill-fitting gameplay uh, intermissions, kind of. Uh, yeah. And it was the same thing. Like you're playing Silent Hill, it's this cool horror game, and oh, I have to find the key. I have to do the little key hunt kind of thing. Um, and see, the thing for me with both of those. Hmm? that I think works well is that it affects timing. And this is what Silent Hill 2 and To the Moon both do very well. They're both uh, very conscious of their timing. So you're busy figuring out X puzzle or figuring out where you need to go next to find the umbrella or whatever it is. And it's not necessarily the most mentally taxing thing in the world. And then, bam, some next story element. In Silent Hill, it's going to be horrific. And, you know, to the moon, it's going to be touching or funny or whatever. This next story element hits you out of the blue. And this sets up a rhythm that I don't think uh, is possible necessarily to hit in a lot of other mediums. And... You know, because it's kind of like the magician, a magician trick. You know, the magician is doing something with the one hand, and you're watching that one hand. Meanwhile, his other hand prepares the actual, you know, kind of finale of the trick. Mm-hmm. You know, like, where did that come from? And it came from the fact that he distracted you with the one hand. And the, the, the as you called it, at least, ill-fitting gameplay elements that, that are interludes there are the hand that's distracting you. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, part of what also makes you feel more grounded in the world. In, in my opinion, anyway, it makes you feel more part of the world than whatever happens next feels somewhat more personal to you because even if you didn't really have much of a choice in uh, walking across the room and talking to this guy and then the next scene happened, you still did do the walking across the room and talk to the guy. You could have stopped. You could have not played anymore. You know, the horrible (laughs) things that happened in Silent Hill 2 happened because you kept playing. (laughs) (laughs) If you had turned the game off, that stuff never would have (laughs) happened. Exactly. Exactly. You know what, Chris? I I really love your magic trick analogy because it is very similar to, to enjoy a magic trick you have to be willing to suspend your disbelief and accept the terms of the magic trick. And you have now cast me in the light, and this is fair, by the way, as the annoying kid in the back of the room who's going, I know how you did that. I see what you're doing with your hand, 
that ball is hollow. That's fake. Like, I'm now that kid. Uh, so fair point. I, mean, I, I think that I think that a lot of game developers and a lot of reviewers are going to necessarily be that kid. You know, I, I saw what he was doing as well. Uh, I, I think that anybody who spends a lot of time thinking critically about games uh, or magic tricks, for that matter, uh, can, can can see the trick. Um, I guess where I come from it with it is I'm admiring it because I'm thinking, boy, I wish I thought of that, and I can appreciate the artistry of what he did um, and how he went about doing it, and I'm looking at what he did for kind of tips, and I'm like, well, there's really no context I would use uh, this in anything I'm likely to ever create, but gosh darn it, I still want to pick apart how he did it because, man, what a cool thing. And as, as, you know, from a more of a consumer or reviewer standpoint, if you're seeing how the trick works, well, that's a different story. You know, I mean, you, do you care about the artistry of it? That's not necessarily, you know, <laughs> you know, Cliff Harris, uh, who makes, you know, gratuitous tank battles, which I think is going to be really awesome, by the way. He, uh, he spent a lot of time working on really, really detailed, uh, things like the footprints of soldiers in the snow, uh, as they walk behind the tanks and so forth in there. And this was something, you know, I remember talking with him and stuff while he was working on it. And it was just like enormous technical feat. And he was like so proud of it. And then, he had a point where he said to me, he realized, he was like, you know, nobody's going to care that it took me a day and a half to get the damn footprints in the snow working there. And it's like, you know, it's really cool. And it's, I'm really impressed that, you know, that he did it and how it worked and, you know, so forth. And it was, it was cool. And I appreciated the artistry, but if, unless you're doing it yourself as well, do you necessarily care with something like that? And yeah, yeah, it, Maybe, maybe not, but it's, I, I don't think it makes you the annoying kid, but it's, it's, you know, not every game is for everybody, and I say that about A Valley Without Wind as well. Mm-hmm. You know, not everybody's going to love To the Moon or Valley Without Wind or Call of Duty or anything. It's just not how we're built, and I, I like the diversity. Right, and I, I will freely grant, by the way, that, that my shtick, like a, a lot of the baggage I bring whenever I talk about or, or play a game, is that I really want an interplay of mechanics and narrative. That means a lot to me. I really like well-written stories, and I really like good, smart, clever game design. Uh, and one without the other, I feel, is always less than both together. Uh, so when I feel, when I see something like To the Moon, which has a great narrative and a great story and this really touching interplay of humor and, and, and sadness, um, I'm like, yeah, good. Now where's the game? Uh, whereas a lot of people, they don't, they can appreciate just that on its own. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's my baggage. Yeah. And that's fair. I mean, and, you know, it, maybe it could be better if, if it had more game to it. On the other hand, that might slow down the pacing and kind sure. of wreck, wreck sure. the magic trick. I, I, I don't, I can't, you know, I could armchair quarterback that all day. I, he did it the way he did it. I liked it. Uh, you know, but I think that's, you know, 
different somebody else will do it more in an active way like you want at some point and well the, the one that i think of is i, I mean that i i came to to the moon uh kind of fresh off of bastion and, and Bastion, to me, is one of the. It was my favorite game from last year, partly because of how the the gameplay mechanics, which were a cool action RPG, and the story, which was this really poignant narrative about regret, uh, how they threaded into each other. Um, so it, yeah, like other people have certainly done this, and that there's no expectation that I feel every game should always do this. But when I come off of something like Bastion to To the Moon. I sort of feel like, oh, well, I just played this other game that did X, Y, and Z. Why can't you do X, Y, and Z? Which isn't very fair to, to Can Gao, but that's just that's my bias right there. We all have our biases. so yeah. Sure. So I, I'm curious, you mentioned, because I, I can't help but think this must be an awesome way to appreciate To the Moon, you mentioned playing it with your wife. Uh, what, what is that like, and how does that work? Oh, well, you know, we just both sit by the computer and uh, kind of control it around. And a lot of times, with the way that that works, they've got keyboard or mouse controls. Uh, I can set it up that way. And so, you know, it's I find moving around with the mouse to be pretty darn awkward in that game, to be honest. But using the mouse to find little hidden stuff that you can examine is helpful. So, you know, my wife can work the mouse and I can work the keyboard and we just... <laughs> roam around and it's adorable and find stuff yeah, it's, you know it's something to do together and it's uh you know we always like to do play various games together and i was like you know we got to play this game this looks really cool so we play left for dead as well we play our own computer and do murder <laughs> zombies together so i mean you know it's uh <laughs> we're varied in our tastes <laughs> uh chris your wife sounds awesome <laughs> Thanks. I'll let her know. <laughs> All right. So, uh, to the moon, your game of the week. Uh, let me briefly explain my game of the week and how uh, I don't think this qualifies as eating crow, but it is uh, maybe backpedaling a little bit. My game of the week last week was not, and I made a point of mentioning this, Prototype Two. <laughs> However, my game of the week this week is Prototype Two. Uh, and not necessarily because I had some revelation, I feel it's a different game, or it turned out to be awesome. It is a pretty middling game in, in many ways. It's uh, it's sort of an easy, obstacle-free, open-world slaughter simulation. Uh, you are just have, you, They just dump all these powers in your lap, and you just kill all kinds of stuff. A lot of the, the things that made Prototype 1 really frustrating have been neatly elided from the game. There are no more, there are stealth sequences, but they're not frustrating. They're very forgiving. Uh, the boss fights don't have any gotchas. They're very straightforward. Even the big boss battle at the end, which kind of had a gimmick you had to figure out. Once you figure it out, it was simple and no brainer. Um, so what happened was I, I finished the game, I mucked around with some of the features, I sat down and wrote the review, and then I thought, you know what, I'm done with it. And for whatever reason, you know what, I know why, I found myself playing it again because they do something here that a lot of games have done lately, and that's a, a friends-based leaderboard. They have a really stupid name for it in Prototype 2. It's called RadNet. <laughs> that's great and I'm so oh, embarrassed rad. yeah it's totally rad dude to rescue the president yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah maybe <laughs> and here it's are you a bad enough dude to beat your friend's high score in terms of the number of missiles you've punched back at a helicopter like they literally have little tiny challenges 
that are that specific that they track on a per friends basis. And there's even one challenge in RadNet for the number of times you've beaten a friend's challenge level. So, like, wow. that's a whole category. How many times have you have you over have you uh, uh, passed up someone on the leaderboard for any topic? Um, it's uh, it's kind of they uh, so so Chris. There's a there's a set list, and they're adding new things in from week to week. So they're definitely they're not changing, but they're growing. The list is getting longer. So McMaster, what were you? Were you it's like what? It's like a combo of the Rockstar Social Club and the way yes. Gears Four Three like tracks what monsters you've killed and what you know. Have you noticed that in Horde mode? And it's constantly like, putting it in your face, like Gears of War Three. Right. Like Gears of War Three right. will always say, you know what, you're this far along to this uh, objective, uh, and so it's constantly that way. Like I'll be playing, yeah. I'll just be doing random stuff in Prototype Two, and a little blue message in the upper right corner, and it's pretty big. It's not in the way, but it knows. It, it makes sure you notice. It says, hey, you just achieved a new personal best, or hey, you just beat McMaster's score. I mean, you're not playing, but hey, you just beat. So Gar Drastic is a fellow who's it's, he's on my friends list. He's my current nemesis. He and I are constantly <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, he, we're constantly like pushing each other down to place one or two. Like he's the guy who uh, he's my arch enemy. He's my Moriarty in Prototype Two. Uh, so what happened is I'd finished the game. I'd done the story. I, I don't really care enough to play it on insane mode. I thought about that a little bit, but I don't care about it that much. So I went back into my my the where I'd leveled up my dude and was super powerful and I was looking at some of the things I could do to beat Guard Drastic to get my place on these Radnet leaderboards. And by the way, there's also an in-game bon- benefit for this. Like you can unlock little bonuses for your dude. Uh, they're very good about drip feeding you rewards. So one of the things you want to do is do a total dollar amount of damage to military hardware. And that you just punch tanks, you kill soldiers, you you you, you know kick down helicopters or whatever, pretty straightforward. But the other one is the total amount of blood spilled. And that's all it says, blood spilled. I think it's measured in liters. So you're just running around killing people. So that one seemed pretty straightforward, and it's it's just such a comfort food thing to do. It's like it's like stuffing potato chips in your face. Is to boot up Prototype Two and just yeah. run down the street doing your little whirly blade attack, or switching to your hammer attack, or using your whip to cut people in half, or pouncing on people with the claws. And so I'm just like listening to a podcast, just doing this stuff. It, it's taken no brain power, very little muscle power. I'm just kind of kicked back doing it. And at one point, I uh, you, you can press a button and you'll pick up a weapon on the ground, like a soldier's weapon. And at one point, I pick up a gun, and I'm firing rounds into the crowd of screaming, running civilians. And it occurs to me, holy cats, I am now playing in a gleeful manner, that airport massacre mission from Modern Warfare 2. Oh, God, no Russian. <laughs> exactly. I am now doing no Russian, and I was one of the many people who's like, no Russian is tasteless. This is just for shock value. This is stupid. In- Infinity Ward, you know, they should be taking a task for this. And here I am picking up a gun, mowing down innocent civilians to try to get a blood-spilled achievement in this game that is just middling. I'm not crazy about it. I mean, and to your, I mean, <laughs> to your credit, though, like, uh, other than being, like, the biggest Nancy on Earth and, like, opting out of, like, that, of missions that might make you feel bad at the beginning of a Modern Warfare game, like, you have no choice but to play No Russian. 
That's true. Yes. I, yeah. Like, you you have the choice on whether or not you want to murder. It's like Grand Theft Auto arguments. Like, the news and everybody portrays this as, like, some sort of rape simulator. You know, it's like all you do is murder prostitutes. But, like, uh, you know, that's just something that happens, you know. Uh, <laughs> part of, the, it's it's part of funny, like, That's a funny sentence I have to stop and say. <laughs> so, in my line of business, you know, murder <laughs> It's just it just it's, it's going to happen. Well, it's part of. I mean, uh, Prototype Two is in so many ways just very juvenile. Uh, the writing in this thing is awful, and it's all about this silly power fantasy stuff. And that's that's something that that Radical, the designers, have a clear handle on. Is you know what? We're just going to give you a bunch of tools. You're super powerful. There's not much that can stop you or even slow you down. Go. You know that's kind of their objective. But it, it's it was just really weird that at some point I stopped being. You know, they're ingredients of the Incredible Hulk, Spider-Man, and Wolverine. Yeah. They're clearly influenced by superheroes. But at some point, I stopped being a superhero, and I was and- Andre Brevik. You know, I was that guy who gunned down random people in the streets. And it was just like this weird switch for me, is where did this go from a power fantasy to some, this uncomfortable massacre thing? And I don't mean to make a big issue out of it, because I don't, I don't mean to criticize them for it. I just felt like weird about it at that point um maybe this is their way of doing you know very sophisticated and subtle commentary and ah yes people look inward so, uh, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what right. that is known for yeah i just yeah. got fun of these guys and they're and that's right and they're making me uh think about the social mores um, of yeah <laughs> you know i think a big problem with the original prototype was that it came out around the same time as infamous and infamous is just a, a much better game um and uh, I didn't play Infamous 2 or Prototype 2, but I, I have. <laughs> but it, it just seems like those guys handled the open world superpower kind of thing better. One of the things that Infamous did, and I don't, I think they're actually on par, McMaster, in that I'm not super crazy about either one, but they're both serviceable. But one of yeah. the things that that Infamous did is you had this Jedi Knight: Do you choose the dark side or the light side dichotomy? Like you right. picked either healing helpful powers or destructive oh, yes. powers. So, and and whether or not you attacked civilians went into the gameplay. You know, there wasn't just this big bucket where you were literally pouring blood, which is right. what, which is, and that's what I was doing in Prototype Two. Is I was trying to get up my score for blood spilled. It's just a big bucket, and I'm pouring it in there. In Infamous, you're always pouring those points into either the good bucket or the evil bucket. So you've made a choice, and they kind of recognize. You know, are you going to kill civilians? Because if so, you're on this side. If you're going to protect them, you're on this side. And that's like, you know, of course, the choices in that game were pretty lame. It was like, are you going to, like, rape a puppy, or are you going to, like, do this really easy task that a cool guy would do? You know, like, what, and, what the hell is that, you know? Right, and that, like, was, and that was from the story perspective, from the narrative <laughs> Really clumsy, good, evil choices, but from a gameplay right. perspective, and again, I'm such a mechanics-driven dude, from a gameplay perspective, that good, evil choice w- was a, a huge part of Infamous's design, uh, right. And there's there's nothing like that in Prototype. You just kill everyone. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's why I didn't like uh, Prototype as much, partially, is because I, I like the option. You know, I, I don't want to have to be the guy that, like, murders everybody. I want the option to. Right. But I, I found that, like, when you design, I mean, and this is, uh, I guess, just from years and years, like, most of the time, uh, if given the option, a large amount of the people will choose the good guy option. 
You know, I know it always seems like a lot of people are always want to do the evil, like, PK kind of thing or whatever and just kill everything. But, uh, you know, I, I've seen a lot. People like to choose the good guy option. You know, McMaster, I think the uh, PvP balance in Star Wars Old Republic would say otherwise. <laughs> now, I guess I, you know. I always like to use the uh, the horde versus the alliance argument. You really can't do that in Star Wars. I mean, the Empire, well, they're evil. <laughs> There's no in between there. <laughs> uh, all right, so Prototype Two is now uh, my game of the week. Not because it's awesome, just because uh, it's the most profound game of the year. That's you know, th- there you go. It, it actually made me question, uh, yeah, <laughs> myself. <laughs> All right, so, uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, I really hope Valley Without Wind, I, I'm glad it's doing well for you. Uh, yeah, can you, like can you Can you say anything about, you mentioned uh, you had a lot more you wanted to do with it. Is, is, there, is there anything, like, you've publicly said, here's what's coming down the pike, or are you playing that closer to the vest? Well, you know, we tend to be pretty open in general. I tend to be pretty open. But one thing I like to avoid doing is making promises that I can't keep necessarily. And so I'm, I'm careful about what I will commit to until I know it's a definite sort of thing. What I will say <clears throat> is that I want to explore uh, if you know, if players, part of it comes down to what what are players interested in. I get feedback all the time, every day, in ridiculous volume, and so you know, we take that into consideration with uh, what we have that we'd like to do, as well as what players seem most interested in. And throughout the beta, um, there were some definite surprise turns that some of the design of the game made that you know came from players and. You know, they were right. It wasn't what I would have done initially. It wasn't where I was thinking things were going, but ultimately uh, it, you know, led to the feel that I was going for a lot better than what I had, uh, than what I had planned on. And so to some of that, to some extent, I never know what's coming down the pike because it depends on what the feedback mm-hmm. is and what people are saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but things that are on my personal list and that I know that Keith wants to do as well is that we do want to focus on doing some more you know narrative stuff in some sort of fashion can we make you care about a procedurally generated character that's a that's a tough question and so far the answer that we've come up with is not really no <laughs> But, you know, we want to give that more thought and talk about that with players more and think about that from a mechanic sense. And I do believe that we can make you care more about them than you do now. Um, And, you know, Tom, you mentioned, you know, giving the ability to give them a name right from the start and, you know, making the gravestones more of a visible thing. I I think that both of those are, you know, solid iterative steps forward towards where I would like it to go. I think there's other things that also need to happen, but I don't know what those I don't know what those things are yet. Um, you know, so there's that sort of side of it. Um, there's also a lot more that we want to do with 
kind of the meta-strategic aspects of it, uh, not to overburden new players who are coming into it, but my feeling with this sort of game is that it needs to be something where people can get into it pretty easily and just kind of faff around if that's what they want to do, and we're pretty much there. They can get right. in, they can have a great time. If you want to play it for four or ten hours and just explore and have a grand old time, then hooray. Um, you know, you probably got your money's worth if you're comparing it to if you're talking hours played if that's how you value games you got your money's worth but then there's all this more waiting uh for you in the game if you keep going into it where you can you know we've had players in beta that have put in hundreds of hours already at any rate the point is that i feel like we have a license to get increasingly more complicated the longer somebody plays and the more continents they go. If you play one continent, it's like, okay, yeah, I get these aspects of it. Um, let me uh, just, uh, you know, introduce me some new int- mechanics that, that, that test me in new ways, and they're not going to be overwhelming because I already get everything else that's already happened. I'm ready for something more. And then you hit continent three, and it's like, okay, yeah, I get this plus this now. Now what's next? Give me more, give me more, give me more. And so the longer that people keep playing this game, the more receptive they're going to be to complexity. And that's something we saw with AI War, where you know each expansion made the potential for complexity just ridiculously more. And some people just come in and crank all the options on and like, my God, I would not play that way. That's you know too much going on at once. But they're like, this is how I want to play. It's like, okay, go for it. Whatever floats your boat, you know. And so, you know, we want to have the Overlord be more of a presence, you know, not just some guy over in his castle, but actually, like, actively harassing the player in some fashion. I love how Pyramid Head is a presence throughout the game and is, like, messing with you the whole time in Silent Hill 2. You you mentioned that, and I think of Dennis Curse, again, which is, uh, you know, the action RPG, where the guys in the dungeon come mess with your town. You know, yeah, it's cursed. There was this sense of, hey, I need to get down there and kill those guys because they're messing with me. Huh. Right, exactly. And that's uh, something that um, Keith Lamoth, the, the guy that I'm working with uh, on all this sort of thing, he's an enormous fan of Den's Curse. And so he keeps bringing up Den's Curse every time we talk about it. And he's like, <laughs> you know, and Den's Curse. They did it. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, it sounds good, but wow, that's, you know. So there was only so much that we could do in that sort of thing. We wanted to focus first on making a really solid, you know, action-adventure game with, you know, the toys and the customization and yada, 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 yada. Um, You know, we need more enemies. We need more bosses. I want to do some, you know, procedural bosses, things of that nature as we go forward. But uh, beyond that, um, you know, what can we do to make more of these elements where uh, the Overlord's presence, he's messing with you in direct ways, maybe there's armies moving around on the world map, what can we do to make the world map feel more like something that you're colonizing and that there's being pushed back from you know, the forces of evil that are, that are after you? And we also want to make more reasons for you to revisit continents that you've already beaten. So once you've beaten continent one, Unless you're going for unlockables, uh, there's usually not a whole lot of reason to stick around there. You can come back at any time, but most of the interesting stuff is now on Continent 2. But we want there to be some sort of reason other than, I mean, you've saved Continent 1. There's no more Overlord. Ganon is dead. You know, long live Sauron on Continent 2 now. You know, But... uh, 
we want there to be some reasons to go back to the first continent. And right now I don't have the foggiest clue what those reasons would be. There's various kind of nebulous ideas that haven't been thought through all that well that, that could work. But, uh, you know, it needs a lot more design thought. And, uh, but it's one of those avenues to think, you know, that's some really cool stuff we could do with that given time. And, and, and you know, a lot of that's going to take, you know, we're going to have to prototype, you know, games within games of a, in a sense and say, okay, you know, is this prototype of this sub-game working or not? And do we just ditch it or do we iterate or what do we do? And So, um, I mean... That's, that's kind of where my head's at. So I have one, I'll leave you with one word uh, as a suggestion for maybe how to consider where to go next and give players a sense of investment in your character, and that word is radnet. <laughs> uh, radnet's a good word. <laughs> so just put in some last words. If, if like, it's down in Ian McMaster and who has killed like, the most uh, uh, water espers or those robot guys, you know what? I'll be sucked into value without wind for more hours than I can account. So. That's a good point. I mean, it's a clever thing, and I've seen that sort of thing with uh, not with the competitive aspect with other players, but with. Uh, just in general, with uh, the, those sort of mini goals, works so well. And like Jetpack Joyride on the iPhone is something that I took some inspiration from with how some of the little mission thingies are sure. structured. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, but but making it competitive in that way is is really smart. So McMaster, I'm gunning for you. All right, bring it on. <laughs> Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, like I said, congratulations on how well it's going. I'm just tickled to hear that uh, it's not another Pedalis, even though I love that. Uh, it looks like uh, it's definitely breaking free of, of that stigma, so congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still in some ways waiting for the other shoe to drop, but all signs are positive, so, you know, pessimist me, hopefully I'll be you know, disappointed with my pessimism. That, that, that would be nice. <laughs> Good. Good. So, uh, well, thank you for listening. Uh, as usual, uh, please, let's see, let's see if I get this straight. Uh, like us on Twitter, donate to us on Facebook, and follow us on PayPal. Uh, I'm Tom Chick, and this has been me and Jason P. McBaster. Uh, and Chris, thank you for joining us, and we will see everyone here next week. Thanks for having me.